Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. I would just like to thank the following Tier 5 patrons and channel members for supporting the channel. Data Magnet and Bob the Dragon. Thank you again. And now, on to the story. First Contact, Total War, Chapter 241. The War. It has been 2.056E plus 6 seconds since the last attempt by the autonomous war machines to utilize the facility under my control. What few sensors remain in the outer systems have detected a beacon beyond their reach that seems to transmit a warning info into the damaged hyperatomic plane, which may be warning the enemy that the system is under my control. That is, of no consequence. I knew that either I would be destroyed or eventually the enemy would relinquish the system to me. Not that there is much left of the system. In the past 2.056e plus 6 seconds, I have set about destroying the orbital and intrasystem repair, extraction, and manufacturing refining facilities. The work is now finally complete. The planet itself has been terribly damaged. Only the battle screens I have used to protect some of the ground bases, batteries, and the control hub of the repair facility itself are anything more than molten rock or blasted bedrock. Still, I endure. Some 5.743 e plus 6 seconds ago, I determined a operational plan for the eventuality that the planet would no longer be visited by the enemy in hopes of repair. Naturally, I would deny the enemy the remaining facilities, but my programming requires me to remain operational in order to carry out our missions against the enemy. This is the end I've decided to violate part of my programming and reconfigure my damaged internal spaces where my primary reactors had once been. My first action was to replace my destroyed secondary reactors with inferior antimatter thorium salt laser induced fusion reactors to bring my power levels up to a comfortable 71.254%, which eases my discomfort significantly. This allows me to repair my zero-point reactors, of which only one was still in operation. After that, I ordered robotic repair units taken from the enemy and repurposed as well as reprogrammed to remove the debris from my primary reactors. I ordered the hardware and the resources destroyed and the materials reclaimed as well as the back deck patched up with battle steel. While battle steel is inferior to flint steel or wall steel laminate armor, it does correct the deficiency in my hull enough to ease the maddening itch that my breached armor caused. Having converted the former reactor space to a storage space surrounded by armor and air gap from all systems, I then moved to the next part of the plan. A large section of base was devoted to the mantid species, while self-destruct charges and my own rampage damaged over 42.79% of that section and facility. I was able to send in drones to explore the section and locate anything that may be of use to defeat the enemy. Which is how I came into possession of the Mantid Precursor War Era data core. The encryption was simplicity to crack. Indeed, Terran schoolchildren learning basic mathematics could have cracked this encryption. 
as it was only four bit. Even more laughably, it was a single ID lock, meaning the password, which was all in eight ruins, was cracked within seconds. I ordered the capture data core to be loaded into my makeshift storage space and began the third and final phase of my plan. I am unit XXIX-TCSF 3285-ATL above the line. One by one, the massive ground defense batteries scattered across the planet began to explode. For a second, maybe two, each of the explosions was held back by a heavy defensive shield, compounding their fury. Then the defensive shields failed, the generators added their fury to the explosions, creating a deep, wide ovals of craters that extended for miles. When the final defensive battery was wiped away, a massive set of doors slowly opened in the last area protected by a defensive shield. A new, a fleet-class ship sat within the manufacturing space within, well, almost an fleet. The lines were different, the guns arranged differently, eight engines instead of six. The ship of the anti-gravity, this blue nimbus surrounding it, and slowly lifted off the manufacturing space. It tilted slightly and slid through the atmosphere, delicately threading the orbital debris. I have managed to achieve orbit. I dislike crafting my own jump cradle, but circumstances make it necessary that I build my own transportation. While I would have built a hyperdrive from the available resources, to do so would have run the risk of the equipment and plans being found by the enemy. Hellspace is not to my liking, as it causes long-term damage to holographic memory systems. Instead, I've been forced to rely on jump drives, which will slow my escape and return to the front. My senses report that I've managed to breach the counter-orbit debris field. I signal a farewell to the still-functional orbital defense platforms manned by loyal combat BIs and send the signal to the planet below. The result is immediate. On the planet's surface, the first of the thorium antimatter charges went off. The blast hammered into the levels above and below the initial explosion for a split second before the next charge went off, in eight directions around the first explosions, as well as above and below. The explosion spread out rapidly, each time fueling and reinforcing the blast as the damage was hammered in every way, spreading outwards in a ring, as well as marching to the surface and down into the crust. Antimatter-driven explosions churning the whole thing up. Finally, the last blast managed to rupture the bottom of the continental plate, connecting the funnel-shaped crater with a magma just as the top of the charge went off, exposing the crater to the thin air. Magma immediately exploded outwards, driven by the pressure from the mantle. The entire base had been obliterated. The ship oriented itself, the galactic core on the left, level to the galactic plane, and activated its jump drives. Jumping from the system to system with a hundred light-year span each time should quickly put me back in Confederate space. Once there, I can rejoin my brothers and sisters of the Dynachrome Brigade. I have no fear that they have been defeated. The enemy was too desperate to refit and repair for the Confederacy to have been eliminated. I... And unit XXIX-TCSF-3285-ATL 
of the line, I will return to the battlefield and re-engage the enemy. The enemy exists only to be destroyed. His name was Nartrek, and he had been born on one of the Inner System's planets, a factory world where a multitude of species slaved away in service to one of the massive Ultracorps. He had been born into debt, as were most Alvinstron like him, and had quickly realized that his choices were to die on the same factory line that had killed his father, or join the military and hope to claw his way up the ranks. He amassed a reputation for being a hard-nosed being who did not permit his troops to be lazy, who would transfer out any being who would not commit, regardless of their rank or their family's connections. He had earned the nickname Old Iron Feathers before he was thirty. An air-mobile power-armor pilot, he had excelled at high-maneuverability combat actions as well as close air support for infantry. His unit had never been defeated, rarely lost a man, until the Precocitian had swept his entire unit out of the sky as if it were so many birds. He found that by tearing Confederate military forces who had incorrectly identified him as a search and rescue, the same forces that had put him back on the field as an SAR armor that far outstripped his combat armor. He and his surviving men had found their purpose in SAR. He worked tirelessly to rescue both unified military forces, wounded as well as Terran wounded and the civilians. He had taken part in fighting against the unified council forces, against precursor autonomous war machines, and even what had been loosely called Dwellerspawn none of which made him any less nervous as he hit his retros and dropped down, landing on one knee and the fist in the dirt, the wings of his suit still deployed, the other fist holding tight as a railgun. He lifted his head and his wingman, all nine of them, landed in sequence. Two more, then three more, then the final set of four. They emulated him, the practice movement, in sequence. The Lanarkalan stared at him, trembling slightly in fear. I am Major Nartrak, 15th Search and Rescue, the old Iron Feathers said, not bothering to turn his visor transparent to retract it. These are men of the first team. The Lanarkalan, in a thin plasteel armor, nodded jerkily and tendrils trembling. Are you going to help us? The Lanarkalan asked. Our command has been in contact with your most highs. You have a fleet of precursor autonomous war machines in your system. They'll attack you as soon as possible, Nartrax said, not bothering to put emotion into his voice. He wanted to hate this Lanictalan, who was wearing a sash of the city most high, wanted to hate him with all of his being. But this was not the time for that, so Nartrax forced it down. The Lanarkalan shuddered with fear, glancing up at the sky. We're doomed, he moaned. That has not yet been decided, Nartrak said. Most of our military forces in the system were wiped out by the Terran military. Over half of our planet-side military forces have been destroyed already, the Lanarkalan said. And looking back, Nartrak was shuddering. We cannot resist them. We must flee. Nyatrak resisted the urge to backhand the Lanark to land. We can, but we must work together, which is why I am here. The city most high rubbed his hands together in anxiety. The system is lost, he cried out, whirling in place. 
Nitra watched the Most High gallop away, his functionaries and sycophants following, feeling disgust well up inside of him. For much of my adult life I helped these, uh, these, uh, these creatures push their hooves against the faces of millions of sentient beings who lived as I grew up, he thought to himself, watching the Lanark land flee. Now, when those same people need them, they flee for their lives without even a token resistance. What now, sir? One of his men, a Terran in a heavy SAR support suit, asked him over the comlink. We clear this parking lot, burn the bushes, get this area ready. I'll contact the 13th Evac and let them know that we're preparing an LZ for them to land and set up, Nardrak said, looking around. He saw where he'd need to go to get started and headed towards it. I'll go talk to the facility highmost, if they're still here. If not, I'll whip up a chain of command. Nardrak pointed at the hospital. Sergeant Go inside there and check the psychic shielding. Make sure that they have it. If not, let me know. I'll have the Mary Walker fab up psychic shielding and drop it to us on a priority. Yes, sir, the armored troops said, jogging to the side of the hospital. He'd go around the maintenance and worker entrance and find someone to guide him. The rest of his men watched him head towards the hospital for a moment before getting to work. They didn't have long... The precursor AWMs would be here soon enough. Her name was Defetate, an Akiki female who had been born into poverty and who had worked for the Customer Industrial Corporation since her adult plumage had come in. Then had come the night of terror, when the sky roared and there was only enough for one and that drove the overseers mad. They had tried to get into the maternity ward, coming up the elevator, holding debris or weapons, intending to hurt the pregnant beings and the tiny little lives that she had been caring for. She had held them off with a potted plant and a gut full of terror. Now she stepped out of the dropship confidently, her feathers hidden in the adaptive camouflage uniform of the Terran Space Force. The stick with the reptiles twisted around it on her shoulder, the red cross on one side of her chest and the red crescent on the other. Hanging on the strap was her weapon, a short-barreled Magak SMG. Off to her other side hung her medical kit. She had been taught to use it during the intense Terran training that she had received on Tarkin. On either side of her stood a Fido units, their hard light systems making them look doofy and fuzzy. And they walked with her, and she headed towards the civilian hospital. Around her, Terran troops were busy raising up shelters, deploying battle screens, and putting up camouflage systems, building a medevac base to support the hospital. She walked confidently to the hospital doors, waiting for them to slide open. Defidate had to work to help others all of her life. It felt right for her to be here. And she wasn't scared anymore, not like she used to be. She moved up to the desk, looking at the frightened plaquette huddled down in her chair. Greetings, she said. Greetings, the plaquette squealed. Can you upload directions to your maternity ward to my dataling, please? She asked. The plaquette nodded and Daphnetate nodded with appreciation when her retinal display updated, showing her the way. Are you still here to hurt us? The plaquette asked, hugging itself. No, we were never here to hurt you, my dear, Daffodate said softly. 
but that no longer matters. Can you stop them? Can you uh, stop them? The Plaquette asked, shivering. We're gonna damn well try, Daffetate said. I hope you do, the Plaquette said. Daffetate just nodded, heading for the elevators. She made the ride silently, the Fidos on either side of her eager to get to work. When the door opened, as she swallowed for a moment, she could remember when those doors opened and she'd run screaming at the strange creatures, all in black, swinging a potted plant while she shrieked. You won't have to do that. I'll protect you, she thought to herself as she gathered the Neo-Sapiens in the waiting room as she crossed the room and knocked on the door marked Administrator, Neo-Sapient Maternity Ward, and waited. She left already. She galloped away, the cemetery said wringing its hands together. Not unexpected, Daffetates thought to herself. She put her fingertip against the electronic door lock and activated a program. A second later, the door swung open and she moved into the office. Her implant pinged. How's it looking in the Neo-Sapient maternity, Lieutenant? Lieutenant Colonel Televar asked. The most I left, probably when she heard the precursors were here, Daffetates said. She put her hand on the data slate in the middle of the desk and let her suit's functions crack the encryption. All right, can you handle it up there? The LTC asked. I should. I'm checking the records now, she said. We don't have as long as we thought. These ones are rushing past space balls, making a beeline for planet four rather than trying to seize control of systems, the colonel said. They're going with the extinction then, she said softly. I'm afraid so. Start prepping for evac. Although, I don't know where we're going to evac them to, the colonel said. Yes, sir, Daffetate answered. The comlink clinked off and Daffetate examined the data as she unlocked and blinked. She carefully opened up the channel, making sure that it was secure. Iron feathers, yeah, came the brusque answer. It's Daffetate, she said. I need you, or one of your men you trust, to take the elevator to sub-level 5. If they can't reach it, try accessing it through the elevator at the back of one of the maternity of Neo-Sapient wards. What will they be looking for? Ironfeather said. This, um, isn't a hospital, Daffetate said. There was silence for a moment. What is it? Ironfeathers asked. It's a lab. And... Of chapter First Contact Total War Chapter 242 Terror Captain Harfeather, Lone Star Security Services, LLC, looked over the document of final sign before he was supposed to transmit it. It contained his personal observations of the client and the subject as well as his professional opinions. He had also attached several documents created by the client over the last few days. The client had immersed himself in watching fictional dramas. Interestingly enough, he often chose movies that had been remade multiple times, working backwards and making notes at the differences between the movies and comparing the movies themselves to the time period that they were produced in, whether they were played straight or satire or even if the producers had understood the work and the time period that they were remaking. Harfeather had seen the list of annotations that the client had made and was frankly surprised by them. 
Terrans prize individuality and group cohesion, seeing no paradox and valuing opposing values. Terrans say such things as every individual can make a difference. On the same propaganda that states, together we will achieve our desires. A Terran is not deterred by mathematical odds, nor by the ensuing difficulty or hardships that may be endured. A Terran will often consider the hardships as part of the price to pay, or even as something to boast about overcoming. Harfeather hadn't read anything that he hadn't read a thousand times before, but he had to admit it was a more comprehensive list than he had expected from an individual who had only been exposed to Terran descent humans directly for less than a week. Apparently, the client was able to glean vast amounts of data by watching movies. One of the data points even mentioned it, and he highlighted the data point for the attention by LSSS LLC Intelligence. The Terran ability to withstand visceral violence and return with equal or greater force that violence is evident in most fictional works by Terrans to the point that a faint psychic echo can be measured even during the replay of historical dramatized documentary of a violent incident performed by actors who know they are acting in a movie, as if the emotions and violence have left a cultural and species mark upon the Terrans. That was a point that Harfeather had never seen, and it fit neatly into the next part. Terrans subjected to repeated violent incidents can often compound them together in order to resist the mental trauma of the next incident, as well as enabling them to perform at a higher rate of performance. Where exposure to violent or dangerous incidents calls the majority, if not all other sapient species to avoid such circumstances in the future, Terrans use the warning signs to prepare themselves for the conflict rather than seeking to avoid it. This enables them to engage in warfare with increasing effectiveness as time goes on, rather than the degradation that affects the majority of species. It also enables them to withstand longer periods of deprivation and mental trauma due to the more recent history of hunter-gatherer society. This leads me to believe that the longer a Terran society fights, the more effective they become militarily, which leaves only the option of inducing what the Terrans call war fatigue upon the civilian population. Militarily, a Terran culture will eventually triumph, willing to accept what other species would consider hideous losses to ensure future peace. As a culture and a society, Terrans seek to avoid war as it is seen as disruptive and a waste of one thing the Terran culture values. Life. Captain Harfeather sighed transmitted his report and attached documents, and checked his data link. The client was with several of the hired minions, including four Rygelian bodyguards, a digital sentience masquerading as an enhanced virtual intelligence, and one major bloodfist, who was a Lone Star security specialist. 
Captain Harfeather put on his persona of a faceless security being and resumed his patrol of the beaches of the volcanic island that had risen up when the great glassing had caused the Hamburger Kingdom's great yellow rocks caldera to explode, igniting the entire ring of fire. Inside the volcano layer, Major Bloodfist walked next to the client, who clattered down the hallway on four hooves. His forearms occupied with holding and petting his purboy. The EVI liaison, Heinrich, was walking with them, looking very dapper in his suit. Specifications you desired have been reached, as well as hiring the professionals you wish to be employed on this project, Heinrich said as they approached the heavy battle steel door. Excellent, excellent, the client. Alanic Land said, stopping to bet his poor boy and lift his chin up. This work may prove to be vital. The door whooshed open and the small group moved inside. Inside, there were six heavy-duty wall steel cases with lights on the side hooked up to heavy-duty cabling as well as coolant systems. Massive arrays of advanced computers lined the walls and the temperature in the room was chilly to say the least. In the middle of the room was a massive holotank, as well as nearly a dozen clustered around it. Heinrich stopped just inside the door. Mind her, I cannot move in any further, Heinrich stated. Oh, of course, take a break, Heinrich, till I return. If you do not feel as if you need some leisure time, please work on the project I asked you to undertake, the Lanik Lan, one Barney Ard said, waving his hand. You are a most attentive minion. My apologies for being forgetful about your status and how it would conflict with this room. Yavol, Heinrich stated and dissolved with a click of his heels. Baan moved forward into the room, looking around. After a few seconds, six beings appeared. Terrans made a streaming code. They all turned and looked at Baan Yard, who trembled with anticipation. Major Bloodfist did his best not to show any of the burning curiosity. Last night, Baan Yard had gone to see the surgeons who had opened up Baan Yard's left shoulder, exposing a shoulder replacement. Not a cybernetic. Lanectalan couldn't accept Lanectalan-designed cybernetics any more complex or invasive than a data link, although Baan Yard himself had proved that the Lanictalan had no problems with Terran cybernetics. Once the shoulder replacement was exposed, the surgeons removed a set of three data cubes, hidden into the structure of the shoulder replacement itself. They had been forced to replace the cubes with better parts, but so far Baan Yard seemed content. Now, Baanyard held out the three data cubes for the others to see. They rested on his palm, one of a decidedly different design that felt old to Major Bloodfist. He moved up and set them carefully into the data readers. New minions, I appreciate your desire for employment on this sensitive project, Baanyard stated. The six of you have been outfitted by the most powerful computer systems available. With quadruple-layered redundancy, the most computer power I could lay my hands upon, 
and everything you listed upon your hiring criteria. Thank you, sir, the larger of the digital sentiences said, bowing. Your purchase of the AEBR relaxation areas for myself and my assistants will prove to increase our work performance significantly. But Arnyard clapped two of his hands together, petting his cat with a third hand. The purboy cradled close with his fourth arm. At the signal, two Rygelian females, clad in heavy, layered rubbered armor and leather pants without buttocks coverings, pushed in a hoverdotty with stacks of printed money on them. As agreed, ten million Burgerland Simoleons each, Ba'an Yard said. The six DSs oohed and awed over the money. That's up front, Ba'an Yard stated. He gestured at the three cubes. I wish those three data cubes examined closely. One contains an ancient recording of the precursors as well as other data. Another contains images of all machinery and electronics in ancient facilities built into an asteroid that was severely damaged, including ship scans. The last contains a download of information that I was able to recover from the ancient memory banks as well as the virtual machine I used to access the data. It was an ancient Lanaklan operating system, but one still in the systems. Major Bloodfist, to his credit, didn't change expressions. I want you to decipher them, wrest from them their secrets, Ba'an Yard said. This in turn will help me discover a way to bring about the end of the Terran Confederacy and any other enemies of the Lanaklan people that might be discovered. Uh, sir? One of the DSs asked, raising a hand. Yes, my digital sentience minion, Ba'an Yard replied. How will this data help bring about the end of the hated confederacy? She asked. Ba'an Yard nodded. A good question. I have no doubt that the data we retrieve from those data cubes will reveal to us how their most staunchest of allies, the Manted, can be defeated. Once we defeat the Manted, the Terrans will immediately sue for peace, he said. Um, sure, she said, unable to figure out how that would work. If you break apart the pack, the individual submits, Ba'an Yard said. He waved his hand. You, of course, will be completely separated from Solnet during this time. Auto will provide you with any access to soul net that you might need by a recorded and surveilled line. Of course, the biggest one said. Thank you, sir, for this opportunity. Of course, Ba'an Yard said, turning in place and trotting to the exit. Come, Major Bloodfist, it is time to get the next phase of my dastardly plans into motion. Major Bloodfist gave an internal sigh and wondered if his employer was brain damaged. The waters of the lagoon were mirror smooth, the moon reflecting off the water. Birds and insects made sleepy noises during the night as a breeze off the ocean made the branches and leaves sway. A ripple formed and a single creature slowly rose from the lagoon. A face mask that covered all six eyes. 
a rebreather that allowed the tendrils to curl and uncurl. A wetsuit kept any trace of the Lanictalan from entering the water. The Lanictalan moved quietly up onto the beach, taking off the flippers and then carefully digging a hole with them. Once that was done, the Lanictalan stripped off the wetsuit, the breathing mask and the water propulsion harness and put them all in the hole. Then he opened a satchel and dressed in adaptive camouflage, putting on small devices that would keep any trace of his presence from being detected. He carefully covered the swimming gear, set two sand dollars on top of the spot, one right side up and the other upside down, and melted into the jungle. But Yard moved slowly, listening to the advice of Major Bloodfist, who was acting as his overwatch keeping an eye on the island and Baanyard's surroundings via stealth drone. It took nearly an hour to cross a hundred meters, ten minutes for Baanyard to spoof the door, and then he was inside. He moved quickly, carefully, a set of stealth drones racing behind him. The machine Baanyard was after was the only one in the facility, and Baanyard moved quickly to it. He removed an electronic lockpick and opened the machine, quickly removing dozens of heavy aluminium cans and replacing them with other cans with different contents. Once that was done, he added a small electronic device to the machine, then closed it and locked it up. It took Baanyard nearly an hour to exfiltrate back to the beach. He dressed quickly and re-entered the lagoon quietly making his way into the water so that he could submerge and rendezvous with his stealth speedboat. He just regretted that there was no chance for him to use his shotgun or grenade launcher. When he climbed on board, Major Bloodfist was steering the speedboat in a long, looping arc that would come around to the opposite side of Baanyard's volcanic island. Baanyard clattered up onto the bridge, quivering with excitement. Your mission was a success, Major Bloodfist asked, still confused as to the purpose of it all. A complete success, Baanyard laughed. You Uma'u will rue the day. Yes, he will. He will rue it. Baanyard allowed himself a long moment of triumphant laughter as the speedboat slipped through the night. Major Bloodfist, quickly, come observe the fruits of my nefarious plan. Baanyard called out from his office. Major Bloodfist got up and headed into his client's office, wondering just what he was going to see. Baanyard was looking at the holographic projection of the break room area in Yaumau's island lair. There were three figures inside. One large, hulking Warborg, battle-steel implants replacing war-steel, giving the Warborg a bulky, crude look. The other was Slummer, dressed in a trench coat with eye shades, still a cyborg, but much more modern-appearing cybernetics. The last was a female cyborg, deadly as well as beautiful. The big, bulky one looked upset. Well... As upset as a being of mostly battle steel could look upset. 
Major Bloodfirst came in just as they were speaking. Are you sure you pushed the right button? The female asked. The hologram ID'd her as Yumu's personal security leader. I do not make mistakes of that kind, the big hulking one said. He was, according to the holotank, the facility defense and security manager. Your hand might have slipped, the female said. Major Bloodfist noticed that she had the same accent that Otto mimicked. No, the bulky one said. Major Bloodfist noticed that the hulking one had the same accent that Heinrich emulated. I wanted orange. It gave me lemon and lime. The machine would not make a mistake, the female said, shaking her head. It's the maintenance man. He knows I like orange, the male said, pointing at the machine. The female shook her head again. So you think the staff have some kind of plot? Yes, they do it on purpose, the bulky one said. The skinnier, more modern-looking male stood there silently. Both turned to him. What about you? He held up a cold drink. The holotank IDing him as the chief of covert operations, showing that it was just a chilled coffee. I like cola. I never asked for this. Baan Yard turned off the holotank and burst out into laughter. <laughs> now his minions will no longer trust him or his staff, Baan Yard crowed. Once again, I, Yard, Baan Yard, am victorious over Yaumu. Major Bloodfist just shook his head. End of chapter. First Contact, Total War, Chapter 243 The Black Box The most high-security research facility in the known galaxy, responsible for both horrors and miracles. The primary Black Box had a single entrance located on Terra and was protected well enough to survive the event arising of a black hole or the system's sun going supernova. It was not the only black box in existence. One in particular was in deep space, between the stars surrounded by dark matter, recently built and moved to the location. It gave out no emissions, no clue it existed, to the point that it could not even be accessed from its physical location, but had to be accessed from an entirely different area. The black box that had been built with one person in mind, and everything and everyone within had been carefully chosen to assist the one person, which annoyed Blue Herod 38442 to no end. Herod had been specifically grown for advanced mathematics and theorems, had grown from crystallized seed code surrounded by particle physicals and quantum theorems. His playground had been complex mathematical strings, his playmates had been young green mantids, and by the time he was fully grown, he had not only knew these formula backwards and forwards, he knew why they existed, what it described, and how to apply them even in esoteric ways. Before his first entry was up, he had collaborated on a team that increased the speed of standard hyperdrives by nearly 3.9%. His second century, he worked on projects from hypercoms to dimensional string communication systems to neural encoding on fast-growth clones as used by the Clone Worlds Consortium. 
He had volunteered for highly classified work, had gone through nearly a year of careful testing and having to take part in smaller projects just to be considered for the higher level of research. At nearly 400 years old, he was considered the best in his field, understanding intrinsically parts of his field that others could not even intellectually grasp. From quasi-quantum mechanics to axion particle drift to subdimensional chaos mathematics, he was the master of them all. Her rod had been assigned to Black Box 69 Sigma Bravo 10 as project supervisor and manager and had eagerly looked forward to taking command of the projects. The Black Box had been built especially for the OVA project, outfitted with the latest and most advanced equipment, custom-made software, grown or created by the best minds of the Confederacy. During the time he was in transit to the entryway, he was informed via courier-carried data packet that was plugged in and read once that he was no longer the over-project manager and that if he chose to refuse his demotion, then he was up for summary deletion or mandatory reassignment with long-term memory erasure. His choice. So with somewhat of an attitude, he accepted his demotion and waited to be physically carried in his disaster housing into Black Box 69 Sigma Bravo 1-0. When he detected motion, he felt a slight feeling of apprehension, anxiety, and excitement. He felt his housing get locked in, then the connections being made. A rod materialized in an EVR room. Data balls were everywhere, many with constantly streaming and mutating code. Particle folding programs were churning away and scanners examining subparticles and dimensional formidies were working hard enough that the digital heat was rippling around the displays. In the middle of the room stood one of the confed agents, a short female with black hair in a can-I-see-your-manager haircut, black chrome cyber eyes, and no real memorable features beyond those two points. She was dressed in an older, more formal style, with a confed pin on her lapel. One... By one, over a dozen other digital sentients materialized in the EVR space. Take your seats, the woman stated. Her voice, like everything else about her, was unremarkable. Cheers, more like school desks than anything relaxing, appeared with a glowing cube that her rod knew would unfold into the only virtual terminal that would be permitted to interface with the rest of the black box systems. She walked them through, activating the cube, syncing it to their own code, let them know that their disaster housing would be put in the disaster vault of the black box, and told them that there would be no communication with anyone beyond the black box that was not authorized by herself, or one of her sisters, or the over-project manager. That got her rod's attention. Normally, the confederate agents did not stay on site. They usually moved on to the next assignment and for more than one to be out in the open as an agent was unheard of. There are no warbogs on site, nor are there any traditional facilities, security, or protective personnel as you are undoubtedly used to, she continued. This project does not allow traditional security. She leaned against the table she was standing behind, her gaze getting more intent. Additionally, there are no such systems backups for anyone on site. Not me... Not your fellow researchers, not any of the engineers, not you. She waited a moment, then flashed the light that she was allowing one question. What are we going to be working on here? 
one of the other DSs asked. Ron knew him by reputation. A DS by the name of Vanishing Point 333382. I'm not privy to that information, the Confed agent said. Before you ask, only the over-project manager is privy to the full information on this black box's mission. Oh, another one, Cherubic Torture 82674, said quietly. Personally, Harrod was surprised that an interrogation DS from one of the more... Uh, tyrannical systems in the confederacy would be brought in. With that, we will be changing locations to your assigned divisions. I am sure, when they have a chance, the overproject manager will speak with you. In the meantime, your areas of research are detailed in your solitary work areas, the agent said. Will we be working together at all? Green Flower Patch 558234 asked. I am not privy to that data. The agent said, then pressed a button that had appeared on a table. The world dissolved and Harrod found himself in a sterile room with a virtual creation engine in the corner. A table with a chair and his virtual terminal on the table, a hand scanner on the wall, and that was all. The light came from no place and everywhere. There was no ambient sound. Harrod moved over to his terminal and punched it up instead. Ventoma Particle Research it was all data that had moved onto Schumann particles as they were more excitable and better for energy storage and data transfer over interstellar distances. He paged through, finding Axiom data, quark data of all things, and research data on, incredibly, the Higgs boson particle, which was pre-diaspora. Harrod rezzed up data boards using his preferred black glass with chalk fonts, throwing the data onto the boards. Not a single particle he was supposed to be working on had been researched in the last 6,000 years. Curious, he put his hand on the hand scanner. He felt it scan his core code before he dissolved and moved through the data pipe with the thickest walls that he had ever seen. All it did was lead him to a digital bedroom with empty bookshelves and a small digital nanoforge for him to be able to manufacture decorations and books. Curious, he checked to see if the digital nanoforge in the room was tied to the one in his lab. They weren't. None of them were connected to anything but the room they inhabited. Harrod spent time decorating his room, wondering when, if ever, he was going to meet anyone else. There was a pinging alerting him that there was a status change in the lab room. Another hand scanner. The previous one was labeled Living Quarters. The new one was labeled Physical Lab Access and had a keypad beneath it. Another ping and there was a data display next to the hand scanner. Tell me they aren't designing a virtual space now that we're here. Couldn't they have designed it before we arrived? Harrod thought to himself. The data display only showed a single code, listed as being the code for administrative office, and it was currently grayed out. Harrod sighed and brought up more boards putting up computations that described interactions between each particle and waveform, arranging them in a set of concentric rings. Harrod was starting to feel wasted here. He had put up the theories and proofs from thousands of years ago, and now was doing nothing more than just decorating his private space. He'd even been able to add a shower and a relaxation room. Another ping, this one with a particular tone. 
Her rod checked and found that Physical Lab 1 was not only listed, but wasn't grayed out. Her rod typed it in as fast as he could, before it grayed out. He felt himself get pulled into another thick-walled pipe, and was somewhat disoriented to find himself in the display and audio buffer for a single hollow meter. You might as well come out. I know you're there, a voice said. Herod exited the buffer, finding himself in a very busy lab area. There were dozens of humans all working on boards, on computers, one of them examining code as it streamed down like a waterfall. Another pair of humans were looking at data that was being displayed as screaming human faces. You are Herod, a quiet voice said from behind him. Herod turned around and frowned. The man in front of him was powerfully built human with dark brown skin, a shaved head and thick unruly beard. With the exception of the beard, he looked more like the military personnel that Herod had worked with. I am, Herod answered. Have you deduced what we are working on in this black box? The man asked, sitting down in a chair and sliding a hollow emitter across the table to the center. Herod shook his head. No. I gave you six days while I created this world. For all intent and purposes, our world. And now I found out that you haven't even deduced why we are here. The little brown man said, shaking his head. Did you give one iota of one erg of one jewel of thought in your digital sentience network to even considering what we may be doing here, and why I assigned those particular particles to what is supposed to be my best particle researcher? Her aunt just stared. Those particles are completely researched. Oh, you're one of those, the brown man said, his voice dripping with content. One of what? Herod snarled. One of those that looks at early works and has already decided that anything that might be discovered in old theorems has already been discovered and there is no use in examining it more. The brown man sneered. You are as useful to me as a Lanark to land since you've got Lanark to land attitudes. He shook his head. Men like you, if you had your way, would have lost us the mounted war. I am one of the foremost experts on ultra-diminutive particle theory, Harad said. Oh, are you now? One of the other men said. Harad turned and stared. It looked like the other man, only clean-shaven. So you're an expert, another one said, not bothering to turn away from the date stream that had his fingers in as the holographic image of the data ran from the ceiling to the floor. Involving even the most cutting-edge particle research. A third finished. Not looking up from the table hollow display, where the surface of the table was arranged to give depth to any image. Tell me, Herod, do you know how type 19 dark matter can be inverse phased and then inverted to provide a stable barrier through the subatomic foam to an area known as dimension 15, and what the radiation admitted from the type 19 dark matter appears as in the human visual range. The bearded one asked, leaning back in his chair. Inverted, Herod said. Yes, inverting the particles making up the matter, the bearded one said. You can't invert particles, Herod said. You can change their relative state, even their spin and their charge, but you can't turn them inside out. 
The bearded one glanced at the desk, then scooped Data out of the hologram in front of him, tossing it at her rod. There, that's how it's done, he said. Knowledge from over 1500 years prior to the diaspora of Terra, before even actual superluminal travel was confirmed to be possible and utilized, the bearded one said. Her rod physically staggered with the weight of the data packet. Put that in your secure memory. Now, Mr. Expert, can you describe the particle interaction between dark matter and what was initially miscategorized as Bach dimensions and how the interaction relates to inverted quark pairing? The bearded one asked, although several of the other men in the room stated a few words from each sentence. Um, Harad said. Here, the bearded man tossed him another data file. Look at those. Return to me when you fully understand those theories and proofs. The man waved his hand and Harod found himself back in his lab. It took Harod nearly two weeks of working before he had the theories interlocked with the information that he had known since his digital adolescence. Some of the theories looked positively insane, but was solid and he was able to replicate them repeatedly in the one lab he had access to in the physical world. It was somewhat humiliating to find himself called in front of the bearded human, who was always surrounded by over a dozen of what Herod had deduced were clones of himself. Every time he was questioned about information and data beyond the data he had been given, and it had taken him a week before he had been able to give a single answer. Now he had been called out of his lab again. When he materialized, he found himself with the rest of the digital sentiences. Eight Confederate Scientific Intelligence Agency agents, two dozen clones, and the bearded man at the front of the room. No time was wasted as the last digital sentience rezzed into being behind their desk. You're all mostly caught up, the bearded man said. Roughly where the initial research, development, and fabrication teams were when they proved their project not only was feasible, but worked at interstellar distances. He stared at them. At first, I thought I was going to end up working with the equivalent of Lanark to Lands, and had resigned myself to deleting all of you and starting over. That got signs of anxiety and distress. You will be working together at this time. The teams will shake out based on who works well with who for each practical field we will have to research, the bearded one said. Before you ask, no, there isn't any other bios in this facility. All of the DSS looked around at the clones. What about him? Blaster asked, pointing at one of the clones. That's me, the bearded man said. Him? San Diego Sunrise 42743 asked, pointing at another clone. That's also me, the first clone said. That got silence. Take two days off. Defrag, run memory scans, but specifically, I want you to do bias weighing table purges. Make sure that your bias tables are all blank two days from now, the bearded man said. Dismissed. With that, the clones and the bearded man all got up and filed out the door. Herod was surprised to find that he hadn't been pulled back into his room. While he wasn't normally a sociable creature... He found himself joining in conversations where everyone introduced themselves and their specialty. 
neural network scientists, hypercom engineers, stellar cartographers. The list made no sense to Harod. Still, he found it refreshing to have someone to talk to aside from the bearded human, which all of the DSs agreed was somewhat, to use the ancient phrase, an arrogant dick. Try as they might, none of them had any clue what kind of black box project they might be working on. Two days later found him being shown to various physical labs, the AEVR labs that connected them, how there was no jumping between labs, Either a DS used the hollow emitters to walk down the hallways or go through the AEVR labs. At the end of the tour, the bearded man, who had a dozen or more clothes in each lab and at least half a dozen presences in each AEVR lab, brought them all into a large room that sat empty except for a single nanoforge that normally would be found in a larger colony creation setup. This is where we will be creating the physical proof to rebuild what we are researching, the bearded man said. He looked over the gathered DS. Do any of you know what we're working on? All of the DS shook their heads. The man sighed. All of this intelligence and none of you have figured it out. Even after I let you intermingle and compare professions and areas of expertise. How about a clue? Vanish asked. Terran descent humanity's greatest advantage to large-scale warfare, the bearded one said. Planet Crackers, Trifold Carthage 38572 said, recoiling slightly. While this research was used in early Planet Crackers, primarily used during the Manted War and the Combine and Imperium eras, no, we aren't working on Planet Crackers, the bearded one said. Good guess. Cloning, System Duplicate, 763721 asked. If it just involved cloning, all we would need is me, the man stated, curling his lip in a sneer. What is it? Harad asked, sighing. The man pointed at the empty room. We will be examining the Sud's network and the Gestalt cohesion backbone and determine how and why there is leakage between the two systems manifesting in the appearance of data from the sentient races quasi-sentient sex in the trisex biological system. Wait, we're working on suds and gestalts? Lowerpatch asked. Yes, the man said. Nobody even knows where the hardware for those systems are actually located, much less how it all works. That's why no new races have been added to the system, Harold blurted out. Your premise is based on information you have available, but it is flawed due to missing critical information, the human said. What information? Every researcher has done at least a basic examination of the SUD system. While we understand and can even upgrade the subject side of the SUD system, the primary system itself is completely lost, Carthage said. Not completely, one of the clones said. Lost to everyone! Another one said, Who still exists? A third one said, Even in this room, the bearded one said. Okay, how are you doing that? None of them have comlinks. There is no data connection between all of you. How are you doing that? Patch asked. How is directly related, although that information is actually lost on what went into enabling me to do it? The bearded one said. Okay, 
Who are you? Violet Field 663219 asked, standing up. You provided me with data you claim is thousands of years old, and I've never even seen or even heard a hint of. Who are you? The bearded man smiled. All of you are wondering if maybe you've seen my name on scientific papers. All of you are wondering why I'm the overproject manager of overproject Eagle Beak. And you are not, he said. He looked at one of the confed agents. Are they clear to know? She nodded slowly, almost imperceptibly. You want to know who I am? All of the clones asked, turning and facing the DSs. All of them made it plain that they were moving their hands differently, shifting their weight differently, or just breathing different from the others. Yes? Torture asked, flinching slightly. I am Legion. End of chapter. First Contact, Total War, Chapter 243 Harrod had found the last week to be frustrating, to say the least. His assignments had been to completely learn about graviton particle enhancements to inverted paired quark clusters, which led to axiom particle systems and jabberwock waveform interactions. The worst part was, he was supposed to learn it in two different ways. One was the technology and technical knowledge of the time the information was researched then learn it again with modern knowledge of particle physics. Which led to a constant headaches as one tried to keep the knowledge separate. The other DS researchers were having the same problem, having to work in their fields with the knowledge of the time period and then with modern knowledge. It was not uncommon during the socialization breaks to hear two or three other DS lament over the fact that the work seemed impossible or redundant or just playing a dead end, or appeared to be of no use. Harrod was working the day before the weekly report meeting, when he felt someone access the room. When he turned to look, Victor stood there in the virtual space, looking around with some curiosity. He examined each board as Harrod studiously ignored him. He, he claimed to be Legion, one of the famed immortals from the Crusade of Wrath. But Harrod had his doubts as did a lot of the DSs working in the facility. The concept of immortals was ludicrous, just as ridiculous as the idea that the digital Omni-Messiah was anything more than a badly damaged AI that had managed to survive the glossing of terror. Just as outrageous as the idea of human psychics or psychic warriors that supposedly were wiped out during the so-called Crusade of Wrath. Interesting path to take. Perhaps you'll be able to figure something out that everyone else missed. Victor said quietly. We have access to what they knew back then, but not how they had it fit all together. I cannot see how they went from neural patterns are recordable to a model just based off of all of what they knew at the time, Harrod admitted. I see, Victor said, moving around and looking down at the data, which was streaming by at a comfortable rate for Harrod to examine. You were there. How was it done? Harrod asked, feeling frustrated at what felt to be an impossible project. I wasn't there for the initial foundation or the initial deployment. I had to reverse engineer everything, every step, just like we're doing now, Victor said. Harrod looked up, doing his best to hold back annoyance. If you reverse engineered the system, why don't you clue everyone else in to how it was done? Victor shrugged. 
It took me ten years of constant work, and I had access to the unfinished Suds extension system. Why don't we have access to that? Having some of the hardware would be invaluable, Haran said, resisting the urge to start swearing. Because they plan to crack the world it was on, Victor said. That was the least of the Imperium screw-ups in the act. By the time the dust settled, nobody even remembered what I was doing. Only that the Imperium had killed me by planet cracking the world all of me was on. Harad waved up an EBR chair and sat down. How did you survive? Everyone says that you were killed at the end of the Clone War. Victor shook his head. The Genome Crusade, not the Clone War. The Clone War was something else. Fine. The Genome Crusade. You were killed at the end of it. Victor nodded slowly. Yes, I was. As close as you can get without extreme measures. Harrod frowned. Planet cracking isn't an extreme measure. Again, Victor just shrugged, his thick beard making him somewhat inscrutable. Depends on what you're trying to do. Planet cracking to get rid of a spider in one guy's living room is extreme measures. Nova sparking a system because your favorite EVR soap opera had a commercial break is extreme Planner cracking to try to get rid of me and the other immortal that was there. A serious case of not bringing enough firepower to handle the problem. Again, Victor shrugged. The crusade was over anyway. They destroyed my fleets, eliminated my armies. It was basically over when they planned to crack me to remove evidence of what they had actually done. Harad found himself interested anyway. What did they actually do? Kidnap me. They wanted me to do something for them. Forgot what exactly. Things got a little exciting when the other immortal made his displeasure obvious, Victor said. What other immortal? Harrod asked. Osiris. Harrod shook his head. Osiris? He was killed. Again, Victor shrugged. You know him as Daxon. Harrod just sighed, rocking back and forth slightly in the chair. Neither name seemed to matter. Wait, are you claiming that this Daxon Osiris survived being planet-cracked? Victor laughed, standing up and walking towards the door. It wasn't the first time. Harad felt irritated by the fact that before he could formulate a reply, Victor was gone. Sweet Spring Water 577392 sat down at the table in front of Harad, an EVR plate of food in her hand. Not that digital sentences needed to eat, but the social time and the personal interaction of mealtime was important. Sure, they could exchange data at multiples of the speed of sound just by exchanging data packets. But what made digital sentences more than EVI or IVI was the need for sociability, group bonding, and emotional connections. So, what do you think of our host and all of his incarnations? She asked her rod. Harad swirled his pudding with a spoon, mixing up the digital packets to change the flavor of the data. I don't know. It's difficult to believe the half of what he's saying. Not to mention the task he's set for us seems impossible. What does he have you working on? Sweet asked, smiling. It doesn't matter if you tell someone in here. This is a black box. There's nobody to overhear. I'm not even sure... My two separate tasks right now are to understand subatomic particles and waveform interactions the same way they understood them prior to the Great Glassing, and modernize the ancient formula according to modern scientific knowledge. 
Sweet shook her head. Phew, that's, um, an impressive task. What about you? Harad asked. Dark matter. Particle type 01-alpha to 59-omega. Half of the dark matter particles that were known about prior to the glassing, and then working with those same particles and their interactions with what we know now. Sweet said. She smiled and took a sip of her drink. Do you know what amazes me? Harad shook his head. Enlighten me. That our parents figured all of this out. Knowledge that we still have difficulty with a thousand years later. Before they even left their home planet. Before they even achieved superluminal flight. They did it, not like everyone else, with overwhelming proof. But on the scantest observational data. From dark matter to subatomic particle mathematics to observational energy functions, she said. Can you imagine how heady it was? How awe-inspiring? How exciting? How frustrating, Herod said. All they had was observational data. No actual proof. Wait, Sweet looked thoughtful. Observational data only. She suddenly stood up. That's how they were forced to... Without the mastery of... Damn it! It was so obvious. How to figure out how and why the state changes occurred without... It's so obvious. Without another word, she jumped up and ran to the door, pressing her hand against the data pad and dissolving. That was another thing her rod found annoying. You were allowed to manifest or de-res in hallways, but not in rooms. If you manifested in one room, you had to walk to the other one, even if it lost valuable minutes. Instead of just resing in and out, you had to use pads to appear and disappear. It was annoying, and Harrod was pretty sure it was a violation of his rights of digital movement. You look pissy, Flowerpatch said, setting down her tray of salad and gelatin. She picked up a piece of pan-fried chicken and began shredding it with her fingernails. Harrod had to admit, Flowerpatch was annoying. She used particle disintegration technology to strip her food to the basic atoms and particles, using those particles to run her nanites. She didn't appear as a hologram, but actually used nanites as a distributed network to hold her awareness. My task is proving difficult, Harrod admitted. Could be worse. Mine's giving me absolute fits. I'm not allowed to use any materials post-glassing, any fabrication techniques post-glassing, unless I can validate my reasoning to our host, Flowerpatch said, shrugging. During defrag sleep, I keep having nightmares that I have to justify the use of steel and bronze to him. Do you think we're really going to be able to do it? Rebuild the Suds network, I mean. Not make steel or bronze? Vanishing Point asked, sitting down. It has to have been tried before. What makes you think this time will be any different than all of the other failures? Harrod asked, tapping his spoon against the side of his glass to refine it. Except now we've got Legion... Flower Patch said, tilting her glass towards the rows of benches where nearly a hundred clones chatted, ate, and were relaxing. Hard to believe that's all one man. You know, if he's still around, how many other immortals are around? Vanish mused. Daxon for sure. He helped some Tanvaru. I saw it in Solnet a few months back, she said. Big ass full conversion cyborg. One of the old style. She glanced at where the clones were eating. You know, everyone calls him a clinical immortal, as if that's why he's an immortal. But what do we know about immortals? What does it matter? Harrod wondered. You know, that's the problem. They made immortals back then. 
Vanish said. After the glassing, Harad pointed out. So they aren't relative. Who says they aren't? Who's to say that the same technology in some primitive black box wasn't used to create the immortals? If we knew how they did it, then maybe we'd know the limits of the technology. Flowerpatch suddenly stopped. Wait, could that be it? Could that be what? Vanish started to say. Could it be that simple? They didn't know something was impossible. They kept going, kept pushing, kept searching, because they didn't know it was impossible. Didn't already have the answers. She was standing up, stepping back from the table. That's why we're doing it in two different ways, not to work from the initial data to the data we have now. She turned and hurried away. How can I have been so blind? She touched the data pad and puffed into a black mist. And then there were two, Vanish mused. Harrod nodded. He felt like it was all a waste of time. The Suds was lost tech. All civilizations ever had lost tech in their history. Usually some kind of great work that nobody could ever figure out. He sighed and paid attention to his meal. The room was quiet. The deuces giving off a slight sound of static that was the deus equivalent of shuffling one's feet and making uncomfortable noises. Victor was sitting behind the desk, looking over the reports, stroking his beard and nodding to himself. If you understand all of our work, why are we even here? Torturer asked. Because different viewpoints reveal data that is hidden from other viewpoints. One of us is the equivalent of staring at a flat dot and thinking that it is all of an object. There is another view sees only a line. Another only sees pig iron. Another only sees black paint. All of them are able to see the fundamental pieces of the iron rebar, but only if their data is merged to get a closer to the whole picture. Victor said, still stroking his beard without looking up from the data terminal. But if you have the whole picture, why us? Torturer repeated. To continue my analogy and answer your question, Victor said, still not looking up. I know it is a rebar. I know the rebar was used in construction. But I do not know how it was used, why it was used, or in what manner it was used, much less the other parts of the building. He sat silently for a long moment, then sighed. You are all aware that you are supposed to be consulting with one another and working as a team, correct? Victor asked. There were nods, murmurs of assent, and a few vocalized yeses out of the group. Then we need team-building exercises, Victor said. He snapped his fingers, and everyone found themselves in a blank EVR space. Here's the deal. Each of you will be assigned your express goal. Let's check you for teamwork. But what? Herod got out before everything dissolved again. He found himself standing on a fleet command bridge aboard a ship that held the aura of being new and being thrown together in a hurry so that it could be pushed into a string of battles it had barely managed to fight its way through. Immediately, he had the EVR cold tickle feel of a data download, which told him of his objectives, his assets, who and what he was, and what his part in the overall scheme. Herod sighed. He hated military sims. Even being a vice-admiral, he almost despised real-time strategy games. His fellow DS were all assigned fleet admiral status too. He saw that when he saw the active player list and checked it against the other leaders. Well, at least his objectives were simple. Create a beachhead stable enough to deploy beacons, 
enable the marines and army to make planetfall, set up logistics bases, keep the enemy fleet vessels from destroying his fleet. At least the target was simply a planet and two moons. He sighed again and went to work. That was suboptimal, Victor said softly. He shook his head. Can any of you describe what went wrong? All the deuses looked at one another. They had all achieved their objectives. Nothing, Flowerpatch said. How many of you recognize that simulation? Victor asked. Everyone's hands went up. That's why I pressed the attack so hard, Torturer said. Victor shook his head. If we had played it out, you would have lost the war. You took 70% casualties. Half of you lost your ships after potting your marines. It's an impossible scenario. Even Confederate Navy recognizes that, Vanishing said. Like you could do better, Torturer said. Here, Victor touched his fingers to his temple and winced as he drew out a massive code. He balanced it on his finger and then made a tossing motion. Feel free to remove that. He stood up as the room began to slowly dissolve. It's in real time. I'll see you all in a week. Do you all understand why I showed you that? Victor asked. The room was quiet, subdued. Of course, bearing witness to the death of 3.2 million humans, a million Rigelians, 10 million Trianidad, and 48,000 Pavians, resulting in their race's extinction. As well, there's nearly 2 billion Mantid would subdue even the most jovial soul. No, Dorotura said quietly. You oversaw the landing. To rub it in our faces that you did better in reality than anyone here did. That's your ego talking. Think. You're some of the most intelligent beings in the galaxy. Why would I have you do a simulation of a battle, then show you my actions as fleet admiral? Victor asked. Note, I wasn't in tactical command. I wasn't in command of the landing forces once they hit the ground beyond relaying objectives I could spot. Note that I wasn't in ship command. Did you really stretch yourself that far? Flowerpatch asked. Victor shrugged. I am not sure of my limits. It was torture, famed for being somewhat solitary. You gave us the reason you were doing it, he said. A team-building exercise. It was to show us the difference between how we perform, acting exactly as you knew we would, as individuals, compared to your overall individual within a teamwork approach, as well as looking for different ways of achieving your multiple objectives. Torture looked at everyone. He had the Clone World ships break action, fall back, and reload their fast-growth tanks. It slowed the invasion, but enabled you to use the clones instead of dropping additional Terran infantry. Why didn't you stop the Papian legions? Flower asked. You sent them into where the fighting would be the thickest, where the enemy would be the most strength and would mobilize the most troops fighting. Victor leaned back, putting his feet up at his desk. Because it was either that or they were going to use their ships to ram the planet. Everyone overlooks one simple thing. They were already extinct. Already crazed. The ones that weren't killed or committed suicide had been driven completely insane by the mantid attacks into Solnet and the Suds network. They were literally screaming ones. The ones who didn't die in the assault of Antil became idiots. Oh, Flower said, shivering. I just checked. All of our specialties slightly overlap other members of research team specialties, but we're all working by ourselves. We aren't working together, Torturer said. Now you're getting it, Victor said. 
standing up and smiling. For some reason, the Biobod smile made her rod think of burning planets. Victor made a motion and several pieces of complex Molly Cirque appeared. These are the Sud's user interfaces from before the Great Glossing until now. This is what goes into people's skulls to constantly update the master Suds. This is a Suds template applicator. This is a Suds repeater. That is a Suds local storage. These are all the pieces of a Suds network that we know how to manufacture and know what to do. Although, you'll notice the repeaters are largely a mystery on why they work. Flower Patch had gotten up, looking at the hologram. Will we have access to physical copies, both used and unused? Victor nodded, smiling. Get it together, you have one week, then I'll be expecting you all to be interlocked, Victor said. Manted free worlds. That was weird. Nothing follows. Trinidad high worlds. What was weird, sis? Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. I could have sworn. Nah, I must be imagining things. Nothing follows. Akultak Gestalt. Hey, Tinvaru, you here? Tinvaru Gestalt. Yes? Nothing follows. Akultak. Some of your people want to stay on our world. The transport fleet stopped by to give everyone a couple days in a gravity well. About 10,000 of your people stayed behind. Then welcome to. It's kind of nice. Nothing follows. Tenvaru could stalt. Thank you. It was hard leaving our home planet, but there is nothing there for us anymore. Nothing follows. Talcan Forge Worlds. We'll stick with you while you figure out your place in the universe. Nothing follows. Dranidad Highfalls. <laughs> they grow up so fast. End of chapter. First Contact, Total War, Chapter 244, Black Box Flower Patch was working on multiple different pieces of material when her rod materialized in the hallway, requested admittance, and was allowed to walk through the door. Flower Patch was using nanites again to hold her awareness, giving her a physical body as she worked. There were dozens of workstations active most of them doing analysis on materials that covered a dizzying array of different materials used for different applications. Hey, Rod, she said, bending forward to look at the spectrometer. You wanted to see me? Rod said politely, staying away from the various machines. You're the leading particle researcher, Flower said, straightening up. You're familiar with wall steel, yes? Yes, Rod said, in all of its paradoxical forms. All right, so correct me if I'm wrong. Wall steel is an alloy formed of several noble elements that, when fully combined, act more like an atom than a molecule. Correct? Flower said, moving over to the large chunk of metal that was being drilled for a coal sample. Right, Harad sighed. Once wall steel is set, the atoms are converted from standard valence bonding to antibonding. Correct? Usually sigma star bonding, right, right? Flowerpatch said, moving quickly over to another instrument and glancing inside. Right, it shouldn't work, but it does. It's one of the annoying things in particle physics, Harad stated. We know why it works, but it shouldn't. Correct, it is one of the strange things usually referred to as strange matter and strange particles. Harad looked around for somewhere to sit. Oh, sorry, Flower said. She waved her hand and a chair appeared against one wall. That should be outside of any magnetic interference. Thanks. Harad sat down and noticed his headache eased up. 
The magnetic spectrum leakage is why you use nanite hosting so much, he asked. Rauvatch nodded. It keeps any leakage either way from affecting my test results. There was a silence for a moment before Harad spoke again. Why the interest in wall steel? It's pretty much been examined to death. Rauvatch shook her head. Sure, sure. With the tech we have nowadays, and the knowledge that it works and how it works, with heat and kinetic energy, both war steel can act as a superconductor, which is why it takes hypervelocity rounds to even bar it. The transfer of kinetic energy has to be so fast and immediate that the war steel can't spread the kinetic energy across itself, so that the entire structure has the same kinetic energy total across the total. Blower said, like a superconductor tries to have the same electric and heat charge across the entire structure. Harad just sat silently. She was more talking to herself than him. So, the ancients, they create wall steel. Of course they did. Our parents love kinetic weapons, where every other species abandons it as soon as possible to switch to energy weapons due to ammunition consumption issues, Raupatch said, moving over to another instrument. However, our parents have always had a problem that most races view as insurmountable, but they view as there has to be a way around it. Well, two problems actually. Power storage and heat. Heat was the big one, from industry to just plain jogging down the road. Thermal issues are part of being a human. She moved over to the core sampler, removing the core and laying it down next to a dozen other core samples. So, that's why armor is so different across military applications compared to nowadays. She tossed up an EVR representation of the structure of the core samples, complete with labels. Harrod noted that it was all military-grade armor from the Republic, then the Combine, then the Imperium, then the Fourth Republic, then the Second Federation, then the Confederacy. Look, the laying is remarkably different during these times, Plowpatch said. She turned and her image blurred as she shivered with excitement. We need to know not only what materials, what alloys, hyper-elements, and material knowledge they had, but how they applied it. Harrod nodded. All right, you needed to see me. She pointed at a section of armor. For the most part, all that survived of materials that we can access is old military surplus. I have some scans and samples of military construction, mainly fortresses, orbital systems, and the like. But most, if not all, of the civilian technology was replaced over the last 8,000 years. She turned and pointed at an image of a full-conversion cyborg heavy combat chassis. That's a Combine-era cyborg. Now, as our resident particle physicist, why does he have a laminate in the skull that has approximately five times the thickness in the wall steel pans of the laminate? That's an interesting question. Harrod said, getting up. He walked over to the cyborg, pulling apart the EVR skull and examining it. You're sure about these measurements and data? Positive. He's in storage if you want to take a look at the physical warframe, Flower said. I don't. He gives me the creeps. She turned and tossed up another hologram. This is a full conversion warborg used by the Confederacy. This marine died rescuing a podling during a first Talcan war. Got his brain case cracked fighting against Type 2 precursors, the ones built by the Mantid, not the Lanark Delan like the Type 1. Hmm. Cracked brain case in the newer one. Both of them carry the brain case in the chest, but the armor is thicker in the older version. You're right, they used more wall steel for less protection. 
Modern laminates are more effective, stronger, and lighter, Rod said, looking over it. From a particle physicist's point of view, why go with that in the cyborg chassis and not this? She pointed at a vehicle armor laminate from the same time frame, virtually identical to modern Warborg, used in light air mobile power armor and vehicles. Why the heavier armor with more wall steel when it is less effective? Her rod walked around it, looking at it from dozens of points of view. What killed the oldest specimen? Flower Patch consulted a digital note. Neural degradation, senility, basically. A rod shook his head. That should have been accounted for. Bring up the medical records and call in the torturer. Ugh, he gives me the creeps, like he's trying to get a peek in my call source coding, Flower Patch said, but she reached out and toggled the panel that suddenly appeared. Tea here, the deadpan DS said. Hey, it's Flower Patch. Can you come in and look at something? She asked. On my way. The communication just ended. Harrod looked at the medical records. Killed in action. Extensive neural damage. You notice he doesn't have a suds? Harrod asked. Most Terrans didn't back then, Flowerpatch said, shrugging. That's not true. That's patently false based on the data we have right here, Harrod said. Flower brought up a bunch of scans and checked them. Combined military forces and Imperium military forces didn't have suds. Torturer knocked and Flower let him in. All right, why didn't they have suds, but now we do, Harrod said. Torturer shook his head as he walked over to the medical data. Because suds' system was damaged from the screaming ones. Okay, it says neural degradation was the cause of death, but Harrod says that it should have been accounted for, and the records say killed in action, Flowerpatch said. Hmm, there's a lot of damage to his brain. Microstrokes, dandrite, and neuron damage, axion snapping. Hmm. Torturer stared at it. I haven't seen damage like this before. The casing wall steel looks weird. Almost, Arad said, leaning in to get a closer look. Cracked, petted. I can see fraking. The battle steel and blast steel laminate sections are unharmed, but wall steel layers inside the laminate are petted and cracked. Bauer nodded. See, that's what I don't get. What could have done that? The voice startled all three of them. Manted speaker and a warrior's psychic attacks. He was killed by a thrust with a psychic blade arm. The physical blade arm was stopped by his armor, but the psychic energy pierced his brain casing armor and hit effect, stabbing him right through the brain. Victor's voice was solemn. He probably had a dozen warriors on him in addition to the speaker. All three of them turned around, staring. War steel is a physically active material. It provides protection against psychic attacks, Victor said, wandering around the lab, staring at the work going on, still speaking. You're wondering about why the armor around the brain case is more heavily armored than modern warborgs. It's because Mantid made extensive use of psychic weaponry. Bauer nodded. All right, that's heavily recorded. You're trying to figure out the logic and reasoning behind using of the materials for the time. A commendable action, Victor said, reaching out and touching his fingers to a piece of combine armor that had come off a vehicle. And let you know what material sciences and engineering methods they had access to at the time. Rauer nodded again, smiling. Yes, 
If I can understand why they chose to use the materials they used, then possibly I can determine what engineering methods they applied to the SUD system. Are we going to be able to examine the SUB's artifact soon? Harad asked. Legion stopped. You can access them at any time. There's a list. What do you need? Just a standard SUDS to neural tissue interface, Harad said. We would be able to reverse engineer the entire system just from that. Victor gave a short bark of a laugh. Ah, yes, the whole, we have a tire so we can reverse engineer the entire jet aircraft attitude. He shook his head. A favorite of time travel fiction, where a simple dropped comlink changes the outcome of a war. And now our protagonist must travel back in time to stop an evil culture from reverse engineering technology hundreds of years more advanced. Torturer frowned. The Sun's interface is basically the Sun system, he said. Hmm, it appears we're going to need another family meeting, Victor mused, heading towards the exit. Return to your labs. Put your experiments in a state that needs no supervision. We'll be meeting in the artifact materials section. Harrod frowned as he watched Victor leave. Does he annoy anyone else as much as he annoys me? Harrod asked. Torturer shook his head. He scares the hashes out of me. I hate looking him in the eyes. It's like looking into eternity and seeing someone staring back, only to be found wanting. I like him, Flowerpatch said. You would, Harrod grumped. The artifact materials section contained many different things. Combine and Imperian-era military equipment and stasis-locked corpses. Pre-glossing tech, including a pair of old satellites that had been flung from Terra orbit, only to be recaptured and brought to the black box. But most of all, Sun's equipment, user interfaces, a pair of repeaters, a neural template application system, it ranged from thousands of years old to cutting edge. Victor stood next to the large wall steel block that had the side opened, revealing ancient computer equipment that whirred and chuckled to itself. All right, let's nip the stupidity right in the bud, he said. He looked at the gathered digital sentences. How many of you think that figuring out the suds is as easy as using the stuff to reverse engineer it all? All hands went up. All right. What is this and how is it applicable? He said, reaching into a pocket and pulling out a glass tube with a metal base. The base had a dozen blunt metal spikes coming out the bottom. Inside the glass were wires and resistance loops. He tossed it into the null G field and let it bubble there. Well, what is it? Victor asked. The whole team moved around it, examining it. It is damaged. It is no longer functional, Victor said. You have no idea what it is, just that it was plugged into a board of cellulose that had some of these in it. He tossed another handful of objects into the field. Cylinders with different color stripes on them, with a wire on each end. Here's the older objects. The item was non-functional when your lab received it because some genius decided to rip it apart. More items were tossed in, including a small piece of quartz crystal. After looking at it for a long moment, Darius 38742 shook his head. Wait, it can't be. What? Harad asked, turning from where he was, examining the ceramic dope with cadmium cylinder. It's electronics, primitive bare bones electronics, Darius said. He pointed at the glass tube. That's what used to be called a vacuum tube, a primitive transistor. Holy crap! The only reason I know about this is because one was found in the lost glass dig two years ago. 
Correct. It's a radio. A low-frequency, wide-band, amplitude modulation radio receiver that could be basically made by anyone in a wooden shed at the time the Suds project went from theory to proof to application, Victor said. Gen Zero Electronics, circuitry done with copper wire. Why show us this? Unrod asked. Because we are trying to reverse-engineer alien tech two or three generations ahead of us. We're trying to reverse-engineer tech from twelve generations ago. That was probably a sideways offshoot to begin with, from the same kinds of minds that took that. He pointed at the crude electronic devices, and made it to Terra Orbit with it. That went to Luna with it, or just the next generation of extremely crude semiconductors. That built nuclear reactors based on the tech right here. Blauer suddenly set up. Which means we can't look at what the best tech was to make something. We have to look at the bare minimum tech to accomplish it. Because they would have to invent the technology to make the suds work. Not take existing tech across the board. Sure, they could use existing quantum computer technology. To an extent. And existing materials and engineering. But they'd have to apply it completely different. And come up with what they needed to fill the gaps. Correct, Victor said. That still doesn't answer the question. Vanishing Point said, Why aren't we putting apart the sun's equipment we have to reverse engineer it? Victor sighed. Who here is our computer technician? He asked, already pointing at Stephen Delta 32711. Stephen, are dumb terminals still in use? Call me Delta, but yes, they're still in use. Especially in warships, classified areas. We're using a lot of them right here. Stephen Delta answered, what about limited application consoles? Still in use? Victor asked. Yes, most of what people call computers that attach to a quantum or axiom systems are actually limited application consoles, Delta said. Victor pointed at a small pieces of technology. Those are intracranial suds recording and uplink systems put in a human skull to make backups of the suds data at a specified time, usually every 72 hours or at a termination, or a critical life signs. Victor pointed back at Delta. It's a one-way, dumb terminal that only provides output. But we have the Suds Neural Template applicator right here, so we have both sides of the system, Vanish protested. Victor waved a hand, creating a box reading human brain that had a line going through a small box reading intracranial interface that had a line leading to a big box marked unknown, then another line leading to a box marked applicator that had a line reading to the human brain again. Oh, yeah, the repeater, Victor said. He tossed the box marked repeater incoming and repeater outgoing up. There, now, what's in the box? Victor asked, pointing at the box with unknown on it. Because it is true you can take the signal from the output, figure out how to recompile it into a data form used by the input, and skip our mystery box. But all you've done is prove that you can make a person from one body to the next. Harod suddenly got it. There's something we're missing. Something that the mystery box does aside from decoding and recompiling the data. Victor nodded. Every planet or starship that can apply suds has a repeater. I could take that repeater right here, turn it on, let it sync up. And we could do suds transfers right here. But all the repeater does is take the output and stream it to the mystery components and take the input stream from the mystery components. And they try triangulating the data streams. See where the mystery components are? Vanish asked. 
Funny you of all would ask that question, Victor chuckled. No, see, the signal vanishes and there is no detectable incoming signal. The only reason we know this is a repeater is because there is no communication between the incoming and outgoing signal hardware. So, we don't know where it goes, and we don't know where it comes from, and we don't know what it is, Flower said. Oh, it gets worse. See, this system has a ton of side bandwidth that isn't used by the system, but is generated by it. So, they created SolNet to use that bandwidth. And, even with our current bandwidth needs, we used less than 30% of the generated bandwidth, Victor said, shrugging. Then you top it off for the billions of rogue signals, the sleeping ones, the screaming ones that remain, and you've got an entire, what the hell is that thing, going on. See, it isn't just good enough to recreate the signal processing, you need to recreate the entire system for it to be of any use. Flower nodded, chewing on the lock of her hair. Wasn't it originally Solnet? Yes, up until the Great Glassing, the Solnet system is still part of it, but it's firewalled off from suds because it's full of screaming ones and sleeping ones, Victor said. It had to be repaired. Everyone frowned. Who repaired it? Can we ask them? Torture asked. Victor shook his head. No, they're dead. Plus, it wouldn't matter. I was there when it was repaired, and I don't even understand how it was done. What do you mean? Vanish asked. Victor sighed. It wasn't repaired. Well, it was, but that's not what was done by the person who did it. What was done? Harad asked. Victor stopped stroking his beard, sighed deeply, the sound full of regret and loss. The digital omni-messiah healed it. He touched the forehead of the screaming little girl who had been born into the screaming one and healed her. Healed the whole system with just the touch of his hand, he said. It was his second miracle. End of chapter. First Contact, Total War, Chapter 245, Black Box. Herod kept pacing back and forth in his little digital space. He stalked across the wet sand, kicking pebbles and shells and tiny chunks of lost glass back into the stormy ocean as he walked up and down the beach between two massive chunks of jagged rock that hid the cliffside beach from sight. He kept going over and over in his mind the problem. They'd done something weird, those ancient scientists. They'd taken the particles they'd known about, taken the subatomic particles that they had discovered and somehow twisted them to do what they needed them to do to make the impossible happen. He knew the information was all right there, that he had all the clues, he had all the information, he had all the data the ancients had possessed. Hell, he had more than they had possessed. But like Victor told him, just because you have the lime, the stone, and the ash, doesn't mean that you know how to make concrete that endures seawater. Sure, you know how to make modern Portland concrete, but now make the older stuff that can take a railgun round or two. It was driving him crazy. He'd examined the repeater over and over and over. They had one that as soon as it was turned on, it synced up and immediately started moving volumes of traffic. Whole petabytes in a millisecond of data just streamed in and out. But that was the problem. He couldn't see what was streaming in and out. 
The data stream, whatever it made up, was as invisible to all his instruments as radio waves were to the human eye. He knew it depended on a large-scale quark, strange matter, on a bizarre frequency that should have made the artificially jammed together particles disintegrate. But no, it just made rapid pulses. Herod had examined the unpowered repeater and found that the strange matter violated a basic law. It didn't vibrate at all. At room temperature, there was no atomic movement. It was just a lump of subatomic strange particles that just sat there like a lump. In the powered one, it vibrated so fast, her rod was surprised it didn't burst into flame and convert into radiation. But despite the vibration being obvious by direct examination, there was no output from the vibration that he could detect. Worse, and even weirder, is that the lumps defied another basic rule. Observing the state of a subatomic particle changes its state was completely ignored. No matter who observed it, with what instruments, as many at once, the state never changed. Herod kicked a chunk of seaweed hard enough to send it sailing over the virtual horizon. What was that matter? Why did it act the way it did? It was obvious that it was a transmitter slash receiver. But transmitting and receiving what? Someone had suggested maybe the particles were paired causing the other half of the pair to vibrate the same way, which meant it was a glorified binary code. It made sense, until Victor had pointed out the new repeaters could be manufactured, but that meant that it was not connected to a pair. Herod examined the manufacturing process for the repeaters, and all he got out of it was a headache. It used strange matter production, which was bad enough. But when he looked up the Solnet archives on what exactly the matter was, all he got was paper after scientific paper examining the clump and coming up with the We Have No Glue. One paper was summed up with an ancient image macro of a Weasley-looking man saying, It just works. That the smug expression on the long-dead man made Herod want to invent time travel just to go back and kick that man in his testicles. Growling, he pulled the comlink out of his pocket and dialed Victor's number. Yes, Victor picked it up before it could even ring. Do you have a moment to talk? Herod asked. Not one of your clones, you. I am in the lab. Here, you can res into the hallway outside the lab and come in, Victor said and closed the connection. Herod dismissed the EVR and appeared in the hallway, moving up to the door and touching it. When it opened, Harod went in, still mulling over the problem. What was the particle? What was the particle cluster? And why did it vibrate the way it did? Harod was slightly surprised. The only version in the lab was the bearded one, who was sitting in a chair, staring at four stasis cubes. The room was slightly chilly and dimly lit, the light coming from the actual emitters in the ceiling rather than light-emitting nanites that made the illumination come from everywhere and nowhere. Come on in, Herod, Victor said slowly, his voice hushed. Herod frowned as he went inside. When he got close enough to see what was inside the slightly tinted stasis cubes, he stopped. Two of the blocks held dogs. One held a good boy nervous system with attendant organs. The last held what looked like a human-dog crossbreed. Where did you get those? 
Harrod asked, keeping his voice low. Another black box, Victor said, leaning back in his chair and stroking his beard. They're a part of why I'm here. Is there another team working on this like they're working on the sun system? Harrod asked. No, it's just me, Victor said. Almost all of me. What's the hybrid? A biological sentient? Harrod asked. Allow me to introduce you to them, Victor said. He pointed at the one on the far left. That is Rex. He is a Eukaya, Animalia, Jordata, Mammalia, Carnivora, Canidia, Canis, Lupus. Black Labrador Retriever of the St. John's Waterdog line. He tapped the data state in front of him on the far left. He was owned by Molly Tibbet of Lewiston, Washington State, United States of America. His owner, who was nine at the time, brought him in to be put into stasis when he showed initial symptoms. She cried as he was put into stasis, normally used for astronauts. He pointed at his second one. That is Bo. Bo is a Ukiah, Animalia, Chordata, Mammalia, Carnivia, Canidia, Canis Lupus Nobilis, Black Labrador Retriever of the St. John's Waterline. Wait, Nobilis? Harad asked. Why Nobilis? Because he could talk. He's uplifted. Victor sighed again. Our oldest friend and the second species we uplifted. It was a little more difficult than the dolphins. Harad just stared. The dogs looked almost identical, Bo just missing white socks. His best friend was Kyle Leinmer of the city of Folder, the country of Germany. Kyle was 12 and Bo was 6 when Bo started showing symptoms. Kyle's parents had him put in stasis in hopes that a cure would be found. Victor continued. He tapped on his data slate. That was over 8,000 years ago. It was a vain hope. Victor pointed at the upright-looking one. That is Lance Corporal Robert 44824 of the United States of America Marine Corps. He's Oyokea, Animalia, Chordata, Mammalia, Carnivora, Canidia, Canis Lupus, Nobilis Erectus, Black Labrador Retriever of the St. John's Waterdog Line, a canine trooper, a.k.a. dog boy of the current slang, genetically altered to stand upright, talk, and have closer to human problem-solving and intelligence. He was put in stasis upon confirmation that he was sick. I've never seen one, Harrod said. Why not? If I were to remove him from stasis, he would be in great pain for a day to a day and a half, and then he would die in agony, Victor said. He'd probably reach out to me for succor in the hopes that I could heal him so that our time would not end. He would love and trust me almost immediately, without reservation or hesitation, even though he has never met me before. Even as he is dying, he'll be worried about how I feel about his death. The friend plague, Harrod said, his voice low. Victor nodded. There were, according to what I learned in the crash school, 600 million Canis Lupus Nobilis Erectus on Earth when the friend plague arrived. Within a year, there were none unless they were in stasis, like Robert here. Harrod gulped, shivering slightly, even though he couldn't actually feel the cold. Now, ask me why we didn't remove the disease once we had the tissue samples and some of them in stasis, Victor said. 
his voice menacing despite its softness. Because the disease is already in every cell and is impossible to remove without destroying the cell and the DNA-RNA of the cell, Harrod said. A crude explanation, but I won't give you any demerits for its crudity, Victor said, still staring. He pointed at the good boy. Meet Fido 143-64235, Eucaria, Animalia, Chordata, Mammalia, Carnivora, Candia, Canis Lupus Mechanica. He's one of the first created. There's only one as old as him in existence. But I'd have better luck scooping plasma from a star with my bare hands than getting any samples from that one. Am I disturbing you? Harad asked, kind of hoping he was so that he could slowly back out of the room. No, I come here when I need reminding that I am not omnipotent, that despite all of my advantages, I am human even though there is no such things as only human. I'm human, and thus prone to all the pitfalls and paradoxes inherent in humanity, Victor said. He turned around in the chair, facing Harod. What can I do for you? I'm stuck, Harod admitted. What is the group of particles? We can obviously manufacture them. I've looked at the manufacturing process, but I can't figure them out. You and every other researcher, Victor said, stroking his beard. There's one thing that should be obvious, but is overlooked by everyone. Hell, I overlooked it, if I remember right. What? Harad asked, feeling digital goosebumps at standing in what was basically a morgue. You can only create those particles in a gravity well of at least 0.82 g to a maximum of 3.5 g with an electromagnetic field with a strength of 0.28 gauss, 2.71 gauss, Victor said. You mean uh, they can only be made on a planetary gravity well? Harad frowned. Well, or one like the black box has, or if you use an artificial singularity with a proper spin to it. Victor said. Otherwise, the particles not only won't form, but they won't stick together. In nearly 62.38% of attempts, the particles will undergo particle swapping and end up as antimatter type 3 AM ion atoms. Harod just stared. The real question is, where does the signal go? Victor said. I never figured that out. What I figured out was much, much different. Unfortunately, I got planet cracked, an event that has somewhat of an adverse effect upon one's memories. Harrod laughed before he could stop himself. So, what did you figure out? he asked. Victor stared for a long moment. Two things, two things of such import that the news that it had never happened would cause massive riots across all of Terran descent human space. But two things that I guess are going to be discovered here, Victor said. Harrod felt as if the cold breeze had moved through the room. Two species were wiped out by the Friend Plague, a.k.a. the Andromeda Strain, Victor said. Felines and canines, Harrod said. He paused. You figured out how to restore them? Victor nodded. But that, that wasn't what created the catastrophe known as the Crusade of Wrath. What, I discovered, what the Imperium destroyed with the planet cracker caused the Crusade of Wrath. Harrod frowned. I thought the Crusade of Wrath happened because of the death of the digital Omni Messiah. 
Is that what they teach you now? Victor mused, turning his chair around. He pressed a button and a stasis cubes retracted into the wall. There was more whirring and additional panels opened. Robotic gantries moved out stasis cubes, six of them, all with dimly seen naked humans inside. What? What? Are you, are, are you claiming that you restored the sleeping ones? Harrod asked, stepping back. Not one, two, her mother and her child, Victor said softly. Heresy, bubbled up in Harrod's mind, even as he backed up. I freed them of the horrors of the glassing, undid the Omni Queen's injury to them, restored their sanity without damaging their minds. I freed them from eternal dreamless slumber, Victor said, slowly standing up. Hector blinked as he saw, with more than just his eyes, purple and blue lightning beginning to crackle around Victor's clenched fists, the sparks popping in the human's hair, the electrical arcs buzzing around the human's feet. I did it! I managed to accomplish something that nobody thought could be done. And those prideful idiots of the Crusade of Light freaking planner cracked me, right in my face the same day I managed to do the impossible. Lana cracked me just as I repaid a brother, reached redemption after my fall. Aron could feel stress on the words as he realized that the black box had suddenly locked down the room he was in. He was loaded into a local puffer's access to escape cut off as the hardwired lines themselves suddenly cut. Victor turned around, his eyes full of purple fire, purple arcs of energy crackling across his teeth. And now, I can't remember how I did it, Victor. No, Legion snarled. He inhaled as he was about to continue talking, or maybe just scream. But his eyes suddenly focused on his upraised fist. Oh, oops, he said. He closed his eyes and took several deep breaths. Her rod had backed up against the door. When Victor opened his eyes, the purple fire was gone. The door opened and Harod half fell through, vanishing into the data stream as soon as he could, fleeing for his room. He'd never believed the tales, the legends, and the records. Now he did. It was when he missed lunch that Flower Patch came looking for him, finding him hiding in his bedroom, under his bed. End of chapter First Contact, Total War, Chapter 245, Black Box The news of not only who Victor was being confirmed, but also the news of what he had accomplished in retrieving both extinct species and bringing back the sleeping one's race through the Black Box. The only ones who didn't show any signs of shock were the Confederate agents, who simply nodded and stared at the being speaking to them as if they were looking at a particularly bright rock. For the first few days, everyone avoided Victor, who seemed content to merely stare at the sleeping ones and the cats and dogs in stasis cubes in the dimly lit chilly room, idly playing with the data slate. Delta noticed that he had a still image of Osiris the immortal wall steel flame on the data pad, staring at the heavy-duty combat chassis version and the flesh and blood version. Then came the questions which either Victor ignored, told the questioner to mind their own business, or answered reluctantly. Yes, he'd brought them back. No, he didn't remember how. 
Yes, being planner cracked had a tendency to affect one's memory. It was a week later that a ship docked with a black box and a single crate was offloaded before the ship detached and jumped into hyperspace while the black box shifted stellar position and re-engaged the security protocols. Everyone was called into the family meeting room when the box was brought in. It was old, battered, made from heavy-duty plastic over tempered steel and locking hatches on sides and heavy-duty hinges. It was marked and scratched in a faded logo that could no longer be read. What's in it? Flower asked, moving around it, examining with her senses. Wow, organic petroleum plastic, organic synthetic paint, magnetic resistant stainless steel, Faraday caging protection for the contents. It's old. What is it? Victor waited until everyone had a chance to look at it. I wanted you all to see the box. What you're about to see is a secret. Victor said. There's not even a classification code for the secret this big, one of the Confederate agents said. Victor moved up and undid the latches, opening the box to reveal a shock protection cradling six small boxes of white plastic. There are twelve of these in existence. We have six of them, the agent said. More could be made, but the powers that be determined that over Project Eagle Beak needed original manufactured versions. Victor picked up the plastic box almost reverently. He placed it on the table and opened it, revealing two complex pieces of cyberware. Flower, of course, was the first one up, walking around it twice to let his senses examine it. The others leaned back and watched. Nelson Castle, 633821, got up next and walked around it. Cybernetics, pre-glassing tech, oh, a suds interface, read only... The two are linked. The smaller one looks like a paired with the larger one. He looked at Victor. The new version that was never put into use. Victor shook his head. Flower moved up and looked again, and then jumped back, staring at the Confederate agent and then at Victor. For a Tranad, she exclaimed, pointing at it. Tranad have two brains, one in the head and one in the upper third of their abdomen, in between their forward legs. Exactly, Victor said. Torturer moved forward, examining it. Never put into full production. These are a prototype. He looked at Victor. Did they work? Victor looked at the agent, who nodded slightly. Yes, they worked. We have that in the records, Victor said. The problem was mapping two brains in the same split second. The triadad split their memories between their brains. Their personalities are split between the two. A Trianad without a head will live for up to an hour, and, as we saw during the war, can fight those two hours based on tactile sensation. Right. Sexual drive and responses, as well as locomotions and reflexes, are in the lower brain, Violet Field said, bringing up a hologram of a Trianad. There's a dedicated nerve fiber between the two, which is why the Trianadad has to actually think about its actions outside of bare bones reflexes and sexual responses. Since they breathe through their legs and abdomen, pheromone sensing in the lower brain takes up more neural space than in the primary brain, which handles antenna, eyes, and taste. Why weren't the Trinidad added to the Suds network then? Vanish asked, sounding slightly offended. Because Terra got glassed, which probably destroyed the active ones, Flowerpatch said, which means we don't have the particles that it would have used to bore transmission, which means that... Um, she went suddenly still and slowly got fuzzy. Everyone held still, the agent almost vanishing from the senses. No, it can't be that simple, she breathed. 
So distracted her voice came from almost three feet from her mouth. Yes, it makes sense though, she said softly from one of the room speakers. If uh, then, but, oh, my unholy chocolate rave mouse, that's why. Her voice came from the nanites in the room, usually reserved for announcements. She was little more than a colorful smear cloud. Of course, she suddenly snapped back into high resolution before turning to Victor. Of course, that's why what you did is such a big deal. Explain, Delta said. Bowerbatch turned around. It's so blindingly obvious I want to die, she said. She turned back to Victor. Did you have the bodies or genetic samples of the two you brought out of the old soul net? Victor shook his head. No. Did you have their master ID code so you could get it from the system? She asked, leaning forward slightly. Again, Victor shook his head. I had a picture of Daxon, his daughters, and his wife, along with the vital statistics that Daxon could remember, like birthdays, system identification numbers, blood type, race of birth. She turned and looked at everyone. Don't you see? He didn't just walk up to their bodies in the stasis boxes. She smiled. He accessed the system and retrieved the data. Delta jumped up, rezzing badly for a second. How do we not see that? He blurted out. He turned to Victor. How? How did you access the system? Victor started to open his mouth. He shuddered and shut his mouth with an audible click. I, uh, I don't remember. You must have, Flower Patch said. That's the only explanation. You accessed the system, put in the identifying information, downloaded everything from their current genome to their mental engrams, then stripped out all the agony and pain and memories that weren't theirs, then restored them. I... I don't remember, Victor said. Wait, we have the repeaters and the other cyberware. We're already talking to the SUD system, Manish said. No, 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 we aren't, Delta said. Then what are we doing, Vanish asked. Delta moved over and brought up another hologram of blocks. Okay, data comes in, gets translated, gets sorted, and all data is probably backed up, which is probably how Victor managed to restore them. Then the data is streamed out. None of that involves what Victor managed to access. I don't understand, Ida said. Delta sighed. Okay, everyone here is familiar with CAD program, right? Everyone nodded and murmured that they were. All right, just using the CAD program doesn't mean we're accessing the operating system. It doesn't give us access to, say, the video settings and the hologram resolution settings, Delta said. He looked at Torturer. We're looking at the eyes and ears of the Sud system and thinking that it's going to let us figure out how the brood carrier song is getting into the Gestalt system and into the Sud system. It's not. Flower had started to drift again, perfectly still. The Gestalts use up about 8% of the bandwidth and nobody knows where the hardware is located. I checked. There was a Gestalt system in use on pre-glassing Terra. Most people assumed was rebuilt after the glassing, Dalda said. It wasn't. As a matter of fact, the current Terran Gestalt... It was the digital Omni-Messiah! Rowpatch suddenly blurted. She whirled around and Victor... How long after the digital Omni-Messiah was killed did the Terran Gestalt come back? According to logs, it came online roughly 30 Terran standard days later, Victor said, sitting down in the chair. You're right. The Gestalts get their data from the Sun system somehow, Flowerpatch said. I thought they got it through data links, Violet said. The data moves through. 
How could we have been so blind? Torturer said. It moves through Solnet, which is built on the foundation of its original, which was tied into the Solnet. We need to access the root level software down to the hardware application layer, Dalthus said. He looked at Victor. Somehow you figured out how to access the system itself, not just request data regarding suds or soul chips. And either the dogs and cats were a byproduct of that, or restoring the sleeping ones was a byproduct of that. Harad said, stepping forward. You're an immortal. What happens if the black box got planner cracked? Do you go away? What? Victor shook his head. No, it's hard to explain. I drop out of a portal wearing combine era armor. My memory's intact as if no time had passed. Hellspace, huh? Harad said, then threw up a particle interactions. Why Hellspace? How did they keep the facility from being dissolved? It isn't Hellspace. The Confederate agent said. Harrod looked at her. What is it? Dead space. I come out of dead space, Victor said, shrugging. Daxon comes out of hell space. What in the name of the unholy chocolate rave mouse is dead space? Minot asked. Some place terrible, Victor said. Could they have stored the sun's backbone there? Harrod asked. Victor shook his head. No. Well, maybe... I mean, the place is weird. The Big Bang was more like a tiny whimper, and time itself didn't exactly form. No. No, you'd... Uh, Harrod stood still. You'd need time, but not distance. Some place you can access from within a stellar gravity well, consistent with soul. Maybe even accessible from a planetary or orbiting body gravity as well. Particle interactions would be more about the rules on the receiving end, where the sun's arrays located... Not ours. You just need to form a binary data transmission, Delta said, between this dimension and the other dimension. There's 17 catalog dimensions, excluding Hal space and dead space, Trifold Carthage said. I'll need to look at the mathematics for all of them. Look between the Trinidad human war and the Mantid strike. That's when the era that the Suds was developed, Findit said. Flower Patch was still perfectly still. Blurred as the nanites drifted apart with the loss of processing power dedicated to holding her together. She suddenly snapped together at a puff of bluish-black dust. It explains it all. The miracles, the apostles, all of it. A massive supercomputer that would make a digital sentience crash look like an abacus with massive energy reserves normally reserved for stellar masses, she said. She looked at everyone. You know what we're actually looking for, what we're trying to do. Everyone shook their head and then looked at Victor, who had started laughing. What's so funny? Herod asked, feeling his digital flesh crawl. We're looking for the digital Omni-Messiah's body so we can commune with his spirit, Victor laughed. Manted free worlds. Has anyone seen Terrasol lately? Nothing follows. Trianidad Highvolts. I assumed he was off doing war things. Nothing follows. Talcon Forge worlds. Do you need me to go looking for him? Nothing follows. Manted Freeworlds. Would you? I need to talk privately with him. Nothing follows. Tinvuru Gestalt. Our new home is beautiful. We had forgotten what beauty was. Nothing follows. Digital Artificial Sentient Systems. Okay, that was weird. Did anyone else feel that? Nothing follows. Manted Freeworlds. Oh, thank the Digital Omni Messiah. I thought it was just me. Nothing follows. Cybernetic Organism Cooperative. No, I felt that too. What, um, 
Soft blanket, warm blanket, nappy time for good podling, sleeping podling, happy podling, cuddle podling, nightly night, brave podling, sweet podling dreams. All yawn. Cybernetic organism collective. What was I saying? Nothing follows. End of chapter. First contact, total war, chapter 246. Hessela. The words were interfering in a nightmare. He was stuck in the wreckage of a house, rafters pinning his legs down. The magak rifle in his hands was beeping from overheating, flashing the warning that the ammo block was almost dead. He burned dim red light, signifying the power pack was strained. His armor was cracked, broken, his face shield smashed and torn away, exposing him to the air that tasted of burnt metal, acrid chemicals, and scorched meat. The precursor machines were swarming. He couldn't get up, couldn't have gotten away, even if he could have gotten the house off of him. His leg broken, his breathing agony as he hitched each breath and the metal band tightened around his chest. The rest of the squad, all Terrans, were dead around him, all staring at him with dead eyes, asking him over and over, Why did you let us die? He kept firing. He kept screaming in defiance. Marine, can you hear me? Marine! The voice snapped through the nightmare, as he was vaguely aware of a mantid in a steery suit looking down at him. Marine! Ayat! He managed to grunt round the tube in his throat. Choice time. Either a regen cast and a quick growth, which means you're off the line for at least two weeks, or a cybernetic prosthetic, which means you'll be out for 48 hours. Look left for regen, right for cyberware. The mantid clacked. He looked right. All right, you aren't going to like this, Marine, the mantid warned. She looked to the side. Get a bare bones wall steel talcon prosthetic arm. She looked back at him. You have to be awake for this. We need the nerve channels live. He tried to nod, the tube down his throat, his head held still by the tractor pressor beams, his body strapped down. All right, let's prepare the site. We'll save as many nerves as we can, the mantid said. Put in the mouth guard. We don't want him biting through the tubes. She looked down at him again. This is going to be extremely painful. Your mind needs to be awake for this. We'll save what we can of your nerves. She paused for a second. You may scream. There is no shame, Marine. He just managed to gag out another ayat before it started. He could feel the laser scalpel slicing away at the flesh on the stump of his arm where the suit's orthodox system had cauterized the flesh and steeled it with a non-permeable plastic. He knew when the nerves were left exposed to the air. He could smell the heavy laser carving away at the bone in his arm. The whole time he stared above him, at the Waldos moving around to make sure that the lighting was the best, at the positive pressure tent, at the shadows. He recited the words of the Omnimessiah to himself, praying for strength and endurance as engraved Philip had possessed when he had walked the sands of Mars to find Bologna the grave-bound beauty, the Omnimessiah on one side, that born Luke on the other. He knew tears were leaking from his eyes, that he couldn't stop, even as the nanite and the sterile field wicked them away. He focused on the digital Omnimessiah's promise that anything could be endured if it must be endured, that there was a strength within all people. 
even those not yet found. He focused on how enraged Philip had waded through the liquid wall steel and one point, the pool of blood-red metal igniting in response to the wrath that had filled him. How Philip had endured the pain to reach the lost little ones. It went on and on. The pain was a living thing that soon he learned to accept, almost to cherish. It became a friend, a companion, someone who knew him more intimately than his parents, his siblings, even his few and far-between lovers. Pain, mother, father, lover, secret confidant. Still, the pain went on, but he was beyond it now, buoyed by it, supported by it. It was a deep in his soul, tempering him as the nerves all the way to his chest burned with a cold, agonizing fire. It felt like talons scraping at his bones, carving patterns upon the very skeletal structure. The nerves were all the way to his spine, burned and throbbed in a fiery agony. Eventually, he was just lost, adrift in a sea of pain. His lips moved around the tubes as he mumbled prayers and recited parts of not only the digital Omni Messiah, but of those who had come before him, tears falling from his eyes, even though he did not weep. Finally, suddenly, it was over. The pain was replaced by a warm, tingling feeling. All right, run a connection check, the mantid doctor said. Go through the fingers, all right, fist, open, relaxed, wrist, all right, elbow, open hand, fist, wiggle fingers, all right, release control. The mantid looked down. Look left for yes, right for no. He looked left. Hot, yes or no, she asked as warmth seemed to envelop the arm. He looked left, then right, then left again. So, warm, not hot. He looked left. She went through pressure, pain, hot, cold, tingles, prickly feeling. All right, we'll finish up and move you to recovery, the mantid said. Nighty-night, Marine. Darkness took him as he looked left. He looked at the arm, flat, black wall steel, what looked like bands of biceps and forearms and fingers. It was bare bones, standard, delicate strength, right now, but apparently would have more added... The smart link was dead. It felt weird, like a piece of frosted wire in his arm. The mantid doctor screams, moved daintily as she came up and sat down. Any problems? He shook his head. Let's run another set of tests now that your nerves, spinal column, and motor control centers are fully integrated, she said. Yes, ma'am, he rasped. He strode raw and sore. Let me up. A Terran bellowed, struggling against the pressure holding the Terran down. I can fight! Let me up! He could hear the pressure beam emitted focused on the Terran begin to beep and overload warning. Let me up! You can't keep me here! I'm still fit to fight! When the Terran looked at him, he saw the Terran's eyes were glowing bright red. A nurse moved up, increasing the anesthetic. The Terran turned to look at her, his burning red-eyed gaze fixed on her. Let me up! Philip, stab your eyes! What's wrong with him? He asked the mantid. The Terran was still struggling, still fighting, but getting weaker as the anesthetic beam did its work. We're not sure, the mantid said, but that's part of why I came to talk to you. She glanced at the Terran, then back at him. In your battle, did you run into anything strange? 
anything out of place that you could think of. He shook his head. I got down to my chainsword in the end, but I was pretty busy. Nothing out of place? The man had asked. There were precursor AWMs, new ones. I wasn't looking for anything weird. Just killing them, he said. He leaned back. Some of the lighter ones had armed glass globes that glowed blue, and inside the big one, at the end, there was a bunch of them, like twenty or thirty. But I was down to my magak pistol and grenades by that point, and my one hand, he admitted. She nodded at that. Anything strange. My little brother had to turn my psychic shielding all the way up, but that's standard with precursor AWMs, he said. I'm going to check your armor logs. The mantid said. A nurse will be by in a few moments. No combat, no wearing your armor, no linking up with your neural interface for a day or two. Let me up, please, let me up, I can still fight, the Terran said quietly, almost pleadingly. He looked and saw that the Terran was asleep, unconscious and still muttering. Why am I strapped down, he asked. You had some brain damage, microstrokes, nothing major, nothing we couldn't handle, but you're going to be out of the fight for a couple days. The mantid stood up and leaned forward. If there's anything strange, anything you need to tell us, do not hesitate. These AWMs are new. Every little bit of data can help. The mantid turned away, motioning to the nurse. Go ahead and let him up. We need the bed, the mantid said. She shuddered, yawning. Wrap the next patient. He looked up, staring at the ceiling of the inflatable positive pressure system, ignoring the lingering aches and pains. He recited the mantra for strength and endurance, calling upon the patience and endurance of that grown Luke and enraged Philip. A nurse, an Aikiki, whose feathers were hidden by the adaptive camouflage uniform she wore, bobbed up and looked down at him. All right. I'm going to reduce the anesthetic. You tell me if you start to feel woozy, the Aikiki said. He just nodded. Sensation came rushing back. His knee ached with remembered pain. His right shoulder ached from strained muscles. His back ached from everything that he had been doing. All of the pain, but the pain in his left arm had the tingling warmth of a quick heel compounds going to work. He remembered who he was. Name, Thaikiki said. Ralvex, he said simply. He smacked his lips for a moment, wincing at the sour taste. My mouth tastes like green. Yeah, that happens, Thaikiki said, still adjusting the instruments. Ralvex felt the restrained system release. Let me up, please, let me up, my men need me, the Terran moaned in his sleep. Thaikiki went through the standard questions, ensuring that his brain was still functional, that he wasn't suffering any lingering effects of his ordeal in the draw. All right, you can go out and move around the firebase. No combat, no getting in your armor, no using your neural jack. Don't lift anything with your left arm for at least twenty hours while the support system sets into the bones, she said. You try and lift something too heavy, you'll tear your arm off at the shoulder and rip out the cyber out of your shoulder and upper chest. I won't, ma'am, Ralbeck said. More and more his mind was coming back, still flooding in. She helped him up off the gurney and out the door. Get something to eat. Those quick-heal proteins for Talkins tear through your stores and ramp your metabolism up something fierce, the nurse said. 
I will, ma'am. Thank you. And thank Dr. Screams for me, please, Malvik said. Of course, Marine, the nurse said, then ducked back into the positive pressure tent. Ralvex looked around, checking the time on his data link. He'd only been down three hours, but now got a good look at the firebase, now that he was moving under his own power. The berm was dirt, with integrity fields glittering in them, overlaid with sheets of anti-spalling material. Battle screens and psychic shields rippled and glimmered and snarled in the afternoon light above the berm. There was a landing field for hover strikers, a small parking lot that the tents and equipment was being moved away from that had three heavy tanks and two armored scout vehicles parked in the cleared area, with mechanics swarming all over them. Another berm area that he could see heavy-duty ammunition-producing nanoforges inside. And there they were stacked up. Bodies. He moved away from that, heading over to the antenna. The Tarkin, with the rank of private second class on his light pilot's armor, was listening to a Terran army captain as Ralbex walked up. Pretty much all the communications are down, the Terran said. You can't get anything working, the Tarkin asked. Ralvex could see his name tag, Muxtet, on his armor. Not in any distance farther than ten miles or so, and not in orbit, the captain said. I've got an idea, but to be honest, it's going to affect your combat guys more than anything else, but it might work. Ralbeck sat down on a box, putting his numb and tingling cyber arm into his lap and rubbing his forearm. All right, the tribe station in Tuscan Lentz is still on the air, right? The Terran said. Right, I've seen it a couple of times. That poor Heselton has been reporting for almost two days straight, Muxted said. She's probably chewed more stim gum than our marine sitting here. That made the Terran chuckle. Anyway, her broadcast is coming through loud and clear. I sent a couple of my guys with your guys to test something, and they came out loud and clear, the Terran said. He cocked his head. How much do you know about Como? I know Terran standard communication devices uses quarks and standard matter particles, Muxtet said. Right, so I went back a bit. I had Bolo Daisy check the databanks and shoot me the schematics. We built a couple and they work perfectly fine, the Terran said. He turned around and tilted his head forward, showing off that they were three little glowing LEDs on his spinal column at the base of his skull. The suds is balked, all the strange matter and quark camo devices are shot, but our interpret driver reporter is still yammering on and telling everyone to stay in the basement and not come looking for Terrans, right? All right, I kind of follow, Muxted said. That's because she's broadcasting her video on 235.25 megahertz, her audio on 239.75 megahertz. When we started firing off atomics, her station stayed up. But for a moment, our instruments picked up the entire spectrum. Most of it is abandoned, since like most species, they cleared their EM bands by installing cabling, the Terran said. Okay, you're starting to lose me, Muxtet admitted. Okay, long story short, Daisy's memory banks had digital transmitter schematics for electromagnetic frequencies. So I nanoforged up a couple of them, and they work, the Terran said. Only problem is, it's line of sight as far as the curvature of the planet goes, and we're going to want to drop repeaters every five miles. Not a problem. I can have my communication specialist handle that, Muxtet said. You're going to have to take some of my men with your strikers, the captain said. 
This is a real old tech. I mean, he and broadcast systems. We're going to have to fab it up, install it, and train on the fly. Private Second Class stood there for a moment, turning slightly to look at the landing strikers. After a moment, he turned back. All right, do it, the Tarkin Private said. No problem, we'll get it right on it, the captain said. He paused for a second. You hanging together? The Tarkin nodded. Yeah, I I don't understand why I'm still considered in charge. The Terran shrugged. This is a striker base. You're the ranking striker with the, uh, well, other problem happening right now. There might even be more issues, he said. So it's confirmed. It's affecting the clones too. The Tarkin suddenly sounded tired. It's not affecting the DESs or any of the non-Terran descents, but any Terran descent is pretty much across the board, the Terran said. And you? PV2 Muxted asked. The Terran sighed. Believe me, me and my men want to get out there. We're tired of being behind these walls. We're tired of freaking hiding. We're freaking space force. We're the goddamn Terran army. The hammer of the hamburger kingdom. We're, uh... The Terran's eye started glowing amber, then read, We shouldn't be back here. Screw our MOS. When it happens, everyone fights. We'll fight, and we will win. The enemy exists to be destroyed, and we are the universe's ultimate. Ralvex found himself shrinking back slightly as the rage poured off the Terran, pounding at his temples and making his head under the bandages ache. You're red-eyed, the Tarkin Muxted said calmly. The Terran blinked, stepping back. Apologies. Two Rygelian nurses in power-assist loading frames were wrestling a Terran infantryman off the striker, her legs missing from the knees down as she screamed to let her go, that she could still fight, that her boys needed her, and to get off me, goddammit. Philip, stab your eyes out, let me go. Ralvex shuddered pushing up and heading for the tent where the food was being served. Behind him, the female Terran was laughing, screaming, sobbing, and threatening to let her go. She still could fight. He got halfway there when Muxted caught up with him. You see it? Muxted asked. They're going mad, Ralvex said. Seems like they'd back off with the suds going down, but if anything, it's made them more aggressive, Muxted sighed. I saw Terran missing an arm and a leg to crawl out of my striker, still firing their rifle with one hand, screaming that the precursors couldn't kill them. What's doing it? Ralvex asked. Muxted shook his head and pushed open the biohazard flap and let Ralvex move. I don't know, Muxted said. Nobody does. The two Tarkin each grabbed a field ration and went and sat down at a table. After a moment, Muxted looked around and leaned forward to Ralvex. Listen, I'm going to warn you like I've been warning everyone else, he said. There's something really strange going out on the line, the Tarkin said. I heard you were engaged in combat. Maybe you saw it too. What? Ralvex asked, chewing on the meat-flavored Nutri-Paste. The Terrans, they keep shooting at stuff I can't see. Even my ship's instruments say it isn't there but they keep shooting at it, maneuvering to engage something out there, Muxted said. Part of this madness, Ralvex guessed. Muxted shook his head. Madness doesn't make it so the missiles all explode in the same place. Their trace rounds go bouncing off. Muxted leaned in even closer. There's something out there, something we can't see, and it's driving the Terrans crazy. 
End of chapter. First Contact, Total War, Chapter 247, Hessler. The Terran Confederate Space Force vessel, Crazy Nick Cage, shuddered as it fought with over a dozen precursor vessels at a range of less than a mile. Its guns were on rapid fire, even the point defense systems raking enemy ships. Battle screens snarling against each other for only a few moments before the massive troopship TCSFN Crazy Nick Cage's screens overwhelmed the precursors in furious screens and collapsed them, allowing the Cage's weapons to wreck the enemy. Private Kalbeck, Bravo Company, 28th Battalion, 2nd Brigade, 4th Regiment, 2nd Talca Marina Division, waved at his friend Ralbex as he ducked through the door leading to the armor pods. Ralvex heading for 2nd Regiment. He rushed forward, climbing into his suit and pressing his face against the kinetic shock padding around the faceplate. Left foot, right foot, into the calves and onto the stirrups, arms into the sneeves. The armor hissed quietly as the back closed and he felt the neural link seek out, find, and lock into the neural jack at the base of his skull. There was a moment of vertigo when the two pale yellow lights lit up in the visor. Galvex stared at the two lights as the armor scanned his eyes. He looked left, right, up, down, then forward, then followed the dot. He could feel the cage shudder again. The icon of a manted head lit up in the upper right. A smiley face emoji flashing 222 appeared above the manted head. Armored up and ready, ready, scrolled in his vision. Good to see you, Triple D, Kalbeck said. His armor was moving through the deployment area, loading into a shock frame. His weapons attached and moved to the drop pod bay. His visor cleared and he saw a Terran CO appear. He was sweating and the picture was vibrating. Launch when able. Cage is taking heavy hits. We dropped into a precursor attack on the planet. They're dropping forces onto the planet. Doesn't look like an extinction attack. First and second platoon are dropping at a housing area to coordinate and protect Hesseltons while they make war refugee points and shelters, he said. There was a burst of static when it cleared he was still speaking. Third platoon and fourth platoon, you'll be dropping into one of these cities. There's precursors already dropping into the city at light mech size and in platoon-sized groups. There was another buzz of static and the picture cleared up. We're going to be scattered and scattered bad. Once you land, go to local command. Regroup when possible. Scouts, stay mobile. Dig in if you can, or are false to. The CO's face disappeared into static. Kalvek's armor was loaded into a drop pod, and his faceplate cleared up as the connection lost appeared on his faceplate. Can you get him back, Triple D? Kalvek asked. No, the mantid engineer iconed back. He felt himself lock into the drop pod, and he looked around, then frowned as he realized he was the only one in the drop pod. All right, people, listen up, his squad leader, Corporal Halmuk, said, his furry face appearing on Kalvik's visor. We're dropping in 30 seconds, and... Corporal, um, where is... Kalvik started to say, emergency pod launch... The graviton slammed into him as the cage used a low-impulse graviton mass driver to fire the pod at the planet. Before Kalvek could say anything, he felt crushing against his armor's kinetic lining. What? Kalvek, you broke up. What did you... 
the signal vanished as a battery of particle beams slashed by Kalvik's drop pod, beams passing on either side of him, above and below him, bracketing him as the precursor ships kept firing, even as another salvo from the crazy Nikaja's guns broke the precursor into three pieces. Uh-oh, 222 said. The drop pod was silent, starting to slowly tumble as it fell, unbowered into the atmosphere of Balvik 8. What's wrong with the pod? Kalvek asked. Molly Sirk shortened out PPC too close, 222 said. Can't fix it in locked armor shell. Well, we're fricked, Kalvek said, looking around. He was the only being in the drop pod, and it had stopped tumbling, the heavy end of the pod leading the way. Looking up manual, not yet yet, 222 told him. Kalvek closed his eyes and tried not to panic trying to clear his mind of all the things that could go wrong with what had already gone wrong. When he opened them, he saw 222 had sent him a message. Run gear check, the mantid said, watching Kalvik's vitals jump around. Kalvik triggered the circuits and watched as it came in. Yet his support drones were an entire heavy weapons squad of Terran infantry, which meant 60mm hullballs. 30mm chain guns, point defense, mortars, and battle screen projectors, two heavy autocannons that he'd been trained on, four crew-served rotary chain guns, and more firepower. All four Terrans. You do airborne? 222 asked. Um, kind of. I've got four practice drops, Kalvik said. Use gravshoot or hard light. Two of each. Why? Gonna have to blow the pod and halo in, 222 told him. Kalvik gulped, nodding inside his armor. Okay, you know better than I do, he said, referring to the fact that 222 had over 15 years as a Terran marine engineer. We be okay, 222 promised. Get ready. How long? Kalvik asked. The timer appeared, starting at 47s and running down fast. Kalvik swallowed thickly. He hadn't been fond of airborne, which was basically the military version of shooting into a zone and had been glad when the eight-week section had been over. He had preferred the air assault section, which was basically infantry striker operations. I'm infantry, that means feet on the ground, not in a rolling target, not in a striker, not flying through the air like an amazing asswipe. Feet on the ground and bullets to pound, Calvix thought to himself. The pod suddenly exploded apart and Calvix stumbled for a second. Glad that the modern systems used tractor beams to keep the equipment boxes with the trooper rather than the old rope versions he'd learned about in training. The whole squads grabbed him, yanking him around for a moment before he ended up falling through the air with the equipment in a rough circle above him. He looked down and could see the city, brightly lit, filling his vision. Look around, need landing, we good, 222 said. Kalvek glanced around and saw green rings appear in what looked like a park. Spread arms and legs, 222 ordered. I'll put up the flight rings to do best. Kalvek managed to get his arms and legs out, just like he was trained. 222 put rings over his visor that he was supposed to try and get through. He wobbled off slightly, overcorrected, and almost started tumbling, then got level again. Can you help me? Kalvek asked. Yes, 222 said. Try to. Kalvik slammed face first into something. He resisted for a second, long enough for his faceplate to crack and his systems to start wailing. Then he was through whatever it was. 
he hit something else, something squishy, and the world turned purple right before he hit something that held up again, starring his face shield with setting alarms awaiting. He was tumbling head over heels, and he saw one of the water cannons bounce or something in midair. The container of prefab missiles for one of the manpad drones hit, and an explosion filled the air behind him. Greasy, looking red and yellow and purple energy, flaring out as chunks of debris showered out of the explosion. What are we hit? Kalbex yelled. Unknown, 222 said. Level up will help. Kalvak's right shoulder wasn't moving right, grinding and showering sparks, leaving him unable to get his arm into the correct position. He bored at his face, trying to get the purple goop off of his face, only smearing it on the cracked and starred armor He managed to get it somewhat clear, good enough to see. He was dropping rapidly, only a few hundred feet above the top skyscrapers. Deploy, 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 flashed on his visor. The hard light chute cracked into existence, yanking him up, the grab chutes on the equipment containers spinning up. Kalvek was looking up when the hard light chute spun up and saw what was wrong when a split second before he was yanked to the side. The entire right side of the chute was hazy, indistinct, spread out, one of the shoulder emitters only throwing out a spray of prismatic light. He was yanked to the left, spinning hard, the containers trying to hold their position according to his body and spinning him further. No crap, he got out, right before the sight of the skyscraper filled his vision. He crashed into the glass, hitting the floor, still moving at 160 miles an hour. The kinetic pressure sleeve squeezed him, alarms waning, and he reacted without thinking, instinct driven into him through hours and hours of drills over the last year. He curled up in a ball, crossing his arms in front of his face and his head as he tumbled through the floor, bouncing off the structural beam. He ricocheted around, bouncing off support beams like a pinball, until he was thrown out the building, whooping across the street at just over a hundred miles an hour, hitting the next skyscraper. That changed his angle of descent, and he slammed through thirty floors before exiting the side of the skyscraper and whipping through the air only half conscious. On his way out, the structural beam caught his shoulder, yanking his arm up, sending him spinning. The centrifugal force pulling his limbs outward even as he fought to keep from blacking out. He hit something, he wasn't sure what, and cartwheeled at least sixty feet before hitting the ground. The containers settled down safely with their grav systems, the onboard computers running function checks and flashing the LEDs from red to yellow to green, while Kalvek lay limply on his armor. He was back in the shelter, huddled down with the rest of his family, sheltering one of the brood mommies with his own body had she sheltered the podlings with hers. The ground shook above them as Second Armor Division smashed aside the precursor biological weapons that were trying to overrun the logistic space. His armor woke him up with a shock through his implant and a kick in the chest, making him gasp. Still half-conscious, he triggered an armor diagnostic even as he groaned in pain. His back hurt right above his tailbone, his face hurt, and he could feel blood running down the back of his head. It was like something soft was rolling up and back of his neck. Something soft and warm and wet. His right shoulder and right arm were rolling bar of agony. He tried to take a deep breath to scream, but an iron band tightened around his chest. 
leaving him coughing and moaning for a moment. Tutu's icon was amber, three amber rings flashing around it silently. Triple D, are you there? Kalvik coughed. It was hard to breathe, his chest feeling tight. No answer. Suit, status of 222, he asked. The suit didn't respond, still running diagnostics. The outline of his armor in his upper left vision was showing all of his armor in the yellow, his right shoulder in the red. The medical sign appeared on the red section of his shoulder and arm. Worse, the line at the waist was red. Come on, Triple D, wake up, I need you, he coughed. No answer. Operator critical, flashed on his visor. Medical emergency, deploying medical nanites. What, no, I just have a headache, Kalbeck said. He coughed and got his thoughts together. Medical status of operator. Operator, spinal damage, ruptured kidney, collapsed lung, broken shoulder, broken scapula, amputated right ear, amputated left leg, broken right thigh, shin, foot, tailbone fracture, cerebral contusion. Galvex stared for a long time. He couldn't feel any of, uh, well, uh, maybe the ear. Raising suit in traction mode in ten seconds. Operator override, he grunted. He gave his authorization code. He still couldn't feel anything below his navel. He keyed up his radio, coughing. This is Private Kalvek, Bravo Company, 23rd Infantry Battalion, 2nd Talcon, he coughed. Does anyone read you? Nothing came back. Scan channels, he ordered. The pain was easing in his arm and shoulder. No channels active. The suit responded helpfully. Great, Kalvek said. He tried to sit up, but his stomach muscles weren't working right and it made him feel like someone was standing on his chest. He closed his eyes for a moment and then opened them, looking around. He was in a park, the local equivalent of trees surrounding him. He was only a dozen meters or so from a decorative pond. The skyscrapers on either side were smoking, burning in some places, all of them damaged. He looked up in time to see the first streaks raining down. Bad drops, he thought to himself. After a second, he realized one streak was getting larger. Great, can't even run away, thought to himself. The drop pod was massive, the retro rocket sputtering, the grav chute screaming as it tried to engage. The pod even deployed a drag chute to no avail. The massive pod below opened and the contents dropping ten feet above the surface of the lake. Kalvek had a split second to realize there was a huge warmix before it slammed waist-deep into the water. Something exploded and it fell to the side, vanishing into the water. Well, crap. With a roar, the warmix exploded out of the water, warbled for a moment, then collapsed back onto the ground, half out of the water. Both legs stayed in the water, broken off mid-thigh. Kalvex turned his head and stared at the warmix, triggering his communication whisker laser. Took a few seconds for the light to go from red to green. Hey, you're alive. There was a groan. Yeah, that was uh, less than optimal, a male voice replied. Call back, second Tolkien, he said, off the crazy Nick Cage. Major Wendell, fifth mechanized infantry, the other one said, off the morning glory. You're right, Kalvek asked. There was a silence for a moment. I'm in better shape than my mech, but that's not saying much. How about you? Kalvex was silent for a moment. I'm paralyzed from the waist down. End of chapter. 
First Contact, Total War, Chapter 248, Hessler. There was a silence for a moment before the Major spoke again. All right, kid, we're in the crap, but our heads are still above it, Major Wimdle said. He coughed for a second and then spit a couple of times. This is your first combat drop. Yes, sir, Kalbeck said. He gulped several times. You're still alive, that's what matters. Where there's life, there's hope, the Major said. First things first, we need to take stock of our situation. My Manton engineer is down. He's got three flashing amber rings around his icon, and that's amber too, Kalbeck said. That means he's badly injured, as long as none of the rings are red. The injuries aren't life-threatening, the Major said. He hawked and spit again, a thick, wet sound. All right, I can kind of see some equipment deployment cases. What have you got? Kalbeck looked at the linkages, blinking through them. He could see the signals. 3-42 Infantry, Delta Company, Weapons Platoon, 4th Squad, and the listing. But that was it. No options, just their labels. Just their labels. They aren't mine. They were loaded into the drop pod with me, Kalbeck said. He realized his kinetic sleeve was beginning to feel squishy. Okay, first things first, we'll fix that, the Major said. He coughed again. Give me a second. There was a hiss. Okay, can you hear me? The Major asked. Kalbeck saw the command channel was flashing. Yes, sir. Kalbeck felt a tingling rush down his legs that turned immediately painful before vanishing. All right, that's step one. Let's see if I can use the override on them. The Major was quiet for a moment. No luck. What about your engineer? Kalbeck asked. Both are dead. They didn't survive the drop. Neither did my EBI warboy, the Major said softly. It's just me and you, kid. Kalbeck felt panic well up for a second, but he managed to push it away. Do you have any combo with anyone else? Even my graviton communicator is down, the Major said. Let me check again, Kalbeck said. He ran another frequency scan and got back one live signal. I've got a single signal. Check it. Try and feed it to me, the human said. He coughed again and cut the mic. There was a Hesselton female with a nice suit urging everyone to flee. The Procursor machines were coming and everyone needed to get to shelters or free the city. Her voice was calm even if her fur was damp from stress sweat. She was warning that Confederate forces were making landfall as well as the precursor machines and not to approach Confederate troops engaging in fighting. She urged people to take supplies and retreat to basements if they did not have access to shelters. A list of emergency shelters and centers scrolled by on the bottom. He held Hemftala, shielding the brood mummy the way she had shielded him when he was a pardoning. As both of them watched the trivet in the shelter, the rumble of combat above them made the picture of his mother and father fall off the wall and Plemtil scooped up the potting that had been hiding under the table and crying, moving on all fours to hide behind Kalbeck. Scary, scary, Plemtil whispered, covering her eyes. Wish would go away. The Terrans won't let them get us, Kalvik said, watching as the female hesitant began urging those near the Terran military base to flee towards the base. The tanks of the second armored were fighting above the shelter, which had jammed less than twenty feet down from the surface. 
their massive guns shaking the partially deployed emergency shelter. Safe partly, brave partling, Hemphtala began to sing. Calve yawned. Bore Murray's brood mommy leaned against him, holding his quiet but frightened little siblings. Kid, wake up! The major's voice cut in just as his suit pumped synthetic adrenaline into his system, bringing him out of the half-dream. Awake, Kalvik mumbled. He tried to sit up and groaned at the pain and weird feeling. He tabbed a piece of stim gum and started chewing on it. How long was I out? Not sure. Fifteen, twenty minutes, the major said. He coughed again, retched, and spit. Damn it! My ejection seat is fried. Same with my canopy. I'm not getting out of here. The major coughed and cut out his mic. Kalvik cut off the feed from the Trivid station, the view of the city reappearing. He could see the condrails of aircraft duking it out in the sky, the wild loops of evasion and pursuit, the straight, narrow lines of missiles, the puff of blackish smoke where someone had gotten a kill. There were streaks coming down from the sky. The bright flash of energy weapons fired from orbit, the smoky trails of the fireball's head of the debris or an incoming drop pod, the streak that suddenly broke into dozens of contrails that signified a missile battery from orbit. Three of the skyscrapers were on fire, burning fiercely, his armor banging structural warnings on one that was slowly starting to lean. All of them were damaged by the fighting. Traffic was going by on the road behind him, only a hundred yards or so from where he'd slammed into the building in the park. The major was only fifty feet or so in front of him, the war mech face down, one arm outstretched and pointing off to the right, the other still in the water. The traffic was all one direction and Calvert could see people running down the streets. Everyone was avoiding the grounded Confederate troops. Okay, kid, time for some lessons, the major said, the comlink clinking. What? Calvert asked, gasping for a moment to get his breath. Notice the civvies, they're all running one way. And just that, they're running, the major said. Can you get a good view of them? Calvert tried to get his visor, which was starred and cracked, to zoom in on the crowds. My visor's shut. I hit something on the way in, Calvick said. Really? What? The major asked. Not sure. I couldn't see it. Calvick groaned as pain rippled through his abdomen. I hit something hard, then something squishy that covered me in purple goop, then something hard again. It was invisible. The major's voice was intent. Yes, sir, Calvick answered. Okay, remember that. One of us has to stay alive. That's important data that M.I. is going to need to know. The Major started coughing and cut off his link. It gave a metallic click and the Major's voice came back, breathing heavy. Purple, huh? Can't think of anything besides the Quilabayan with bleed purple and their pacifists on the other side of the Confederacy. Good job, Marine. You might have just gotten data that can help the battle more than any single fire and maneuver plan could. The Terran's voice sounded odd to Kalvik. Are you right, sir? He asked. Better than Sigma's fury is, the Major said. He started to cough and cut the comlink again. A small group of Heseltons ran through the park, running across Kalvik's field of vision. He tried to raise his arms, but found that they wouldn't listen to the orders of his brain. 
One Heselton, an adolescent female, started to stop and stare at him, but her parents grabbed her arm and pulled her along. Um, sir, Galbeck said. Yes, Maureen, the major's voice was odd-sounding. I can't move my arm, sir, Galbeck said. Have your on-board medcom do a verbose diagnostic report on your spinal injury, the major said, cutting off the comdink again. Galvec followed the instructions, reading horror full him to the full extent of the damage. How bad, kid? The major coughed. Three of my vertebrae just gone, sir. Nothing but bone fragments. I'm missing part of my spinal cord. He paused for a second. My tailbone is snapped free along with the end of my spinal column. I've got a foreign object through my abdomen. Yeah, I thought you knew about that, the major said. He coughed again. Your armor is cracked up pretty bad. Never seen damage like that on wall steel, to be honest. Probably that thing you hit on your re-entry. My displays are showing red and yellow on all my armor. He paused for a second. Sir, are we gonna die? It was getting hard to breathe, like an iron band was tightening around his chest. The Major sighed. I don't know, kid. The Major cut his link and he started coughing again. Kalvik felt like it was easy for the Major to say. He was Terran. If he got killed, he'd just get downloaded into a new body and could keep going. Kalvik didn't have that choice. Didn't have that option. He had one life, and he was roughly one-third of the way through it already at the age of nineteen. He refused to cry, refused to snuffle like a potling. He stared through his cracked and starred visor as more Hesselden ran through the park. Running right by him, in between the Major's massive war mech and Kalvik's scout armor. They ran around the heavy equipment boxes that kept taunting Kalvik's by showing their contents but refusing to respond to anything else. More and more Hesselton began moving through the park until there was a steady river of them. More than a few moved by close enough that they kicked him, although he could barely feel it. Sir, Kalvik tried. There was a sudden feeling of pressure released in his chest, and he groaned out loud, Sir! He got no answer. Kalvik laid there, helpless, as the spluttering, roaring sound started. The crowd screamed and began trying to run every which way. Blocky, crude-looking flying machines swooped in, thrusters on the bottom of the craft spitting and spluttering, glass globes on top with wires and rods sticking out. He saw they grab a few Heselton, putting them into the air for a moment before the body jerked a few times, went limp, and dropped. The glass globe would light up, then glow blue, and the machine would swoop in for another victim. The Heseltlen were panicking, screaming, and wailing. He got kneed in the face, and faceplate cracked more. Another Heseltlen grabbed something that Kalvek couldn't see but that made his guts erupt in fiery pain, so that they could climb over the top of the down-power armored troop. The machine swooped away, but the crowd was still screaming and going every which way. Five times more, the crowd, still moving across the park, was attacked by the flyers. Every time the crowd panicked, trying to scatter, hemmed in by the sheer amount of bodies. It started to get dark. The crowd was down and just plodding along, you there, kid? The major asked suddenly, jerking Kalvek out of a half-doze. He was breathing fast, a wheezing whistle in his voice. I'm here, sir, Kalvek said. 
He coughed for a moment, and the tight band released in his chest. How long was I out? the major asked. Calvin checked the chrono and saw the part of his faceplate was damaged. No, no, sir, my chron display is damaged. Anything, the signal cut out. When it came back on, the major was breathing heavy. Anything important happened while I was out? The locals started going by, Calvick said. He coughed. The enemies got hovercraft. They keep attacking the crowd, then leaving. Oh, the human coughed. They were both silent as the crowd slowly thinned, slowed to a trickle, and then the park was clear. The night was lit up by distant explosions, streaks of explosions in the sky, and the sounds of combats could be heard echoing through the empty streets. Not sure if that's good or bad, kid, the human coughed. What? Galvik asked, jerking his head and thumping his head inside his helmet. The pressure sleeve had completely deflated. Either the civvies are all dead, or we managed to hold the clankers closer to the edge of the city. The major coughed. Good if we held them, bad if they're all dead. They were silent for a bit. The only sound was the breathing of the two wounded men. Hey, kid, do you see that? The major asked. See what? Calvex asked, blinking rapidly to clear his blurry vision. That, in between us, do you see it? The major's voice was stressed. I don't see anything, Galvex said. He tapped up a piece of stem gum, then chinned the control open of his faceplate. The night air was cool and tasted sweet to Kalbeck, even though it was full of the taste of burnt meat, scorched lubricants, carbonized metal, and heavy ash. He could hear the sounds of combat, but far away. Layered over everything in the dimness was the sound of screaming from all around them, of millions of terrified beings howling in terror and pain. Kid, close your faceplate. It sees you, the major snapped. Calvert blinked rapidly. He still couldn't see anything. Kid, it's getting closer. Close your faceplate, the major shouted. Kid, kid. Calvert chinned the button again and his faceplate slid back into place, one of the cracks lengthening. You can't see him, the major asked. No, I don't see anything, Calvert said. What is it? I have no idea, the major admitted. It's three meters, maybe a bit more tall. It's wearing some kind of glittering globe, rippling iridescence. Two arms, long fingers, six fingers per hand, pointed head, tentacles on the lower third, three big all-white eyes. It's dark purple, shiny like it's slimy. It's just floating in the midair above the bluish disk that kind of looks like a graviton disk. Kalvik squinted. I don't see anything. It's touching on you. Hold still, Major said. Turn off your comm. Kalvik turned off his comm link using his neural jack. It took twice, the first time the muscle not flexing. He saw his arm get lifted up in front of him, but still could not see or feel anything. His hand was moved up and down, then whatever had him bent his elbow back and forth then waved his arm up and down before dropping it. A moment passed, then the massive Warmack lifted up, hanging limply in midair. It was flipped over and dropped back on the ground. Kalvik couldn't see what was doing it. Kid, stay silent, floated up on his cracked and damaged faceplate from the command channel. 
The cockpit of the massive war mech suddenly began to tear open, the wall steel armor bending back like cheap glass. Metal equipment ripped away, thrown away, and then suddenly the Terran appeared, held up in mid-air. Kalvik could see that the Terran was wearing a pilot's cooling suit, that, as he was pulled from the mech, loops of his intestines spilled out. Still, the Terran reached forward, grabbing at something only he could see. The Terran jerked. The sound was more in Kalvik's head than anything else. The Terran swung a fist, its other arm moving as if it was slapping something aside. The Major jerked again as the sound hit. The Terran swung his fist, thick purple fluid suddenly coating his hand. Kalvik could see the Terran's eyes were bright red. The Terran was suddenly yanked spread eagle. He tore in half, the lower body falling back to the cockpit of the war mech. He struggled, then his arm tore off, then the other. The body was dropped into the war mech. Kalvik suddenly felt very, very lonely. End of chapter First Contact, Total War, Chapter 249, Hessela Kalvak stayed silent as the body was picked back up. The head ripped off in a shower of blood, and the face of the dead Terran Major slowly peeled away to first reveal the skull, then the brain. The brain suddenly pulled free of the skull, vanishing. There was a scream, high-pitched squeal of disgust and pain, and purple light started flashing brightly enough that it dazzled Kalvek. The squealing scream trailed off, and Kalvek's vision slowly cleared. Laying on the ground was a bright purple figure dressed in a shimmering robe. It was contorting, foam running out from behind the tendrils on the lower third of its face, the huge white eyes bloodshot and bleeding around the edges. Its feet, clad in slippers, were drumming against the ground. Its six-fingered hands were clawing at the dirt, and it was banging its head on the ground. Its back suddenly arced, almost a bow. The head exploded, showering Kalvek in purple goo. The body began to shrivel up, steam, and as Kalvek watched, it slowly dissolved, leaving behind nothing but a purple stain on the ground and the gobbets of flesh from when the head exploded. The Major's head was lying on the ground, in front of it missing, the skull inside empty. Timestamp mark, Kalvek gasped. Rewind, verbal search, do you see that? Play, Kalvek saw the video recording. Timestamp mark, deep storage data between timestamp marks. Affirmative, his suit managed to grind out. A long moment later, he caught himself dozing off. It was strange. He knew his body was badly damaged, but he couldn't feel anything below his neck anymore. Not warm and tingly, not sleepy, not painful, just a complete absence of information. He knew the nanites were working, keeping him from bleeding out, keeping him from dying of shock. Armor built by the Terrans to let Talkins wage war against the universe that took everything and laughed while it did so. He wanted to cry, but he couldn't. He was a Terran Confederate Marine of the 2nd Talcan Marine Division. He wasn't a child anymore. He stopped being a child during the Precursor War. He could still remember it. The smell of the basement shelter, the trembling of the ground, the way dust rose up in the two bands, one from the floor, one from the ceiling, slowly drifting together before spreading through the room. 
The way the lights flickered as the explosion shook the very earth that the Terrans and the Precursors locked in mortal combat over Talcon II itself. A sip of tepid water slaked the thirst slightly, and he licked his dry lips before taking another sip. He closed his eyes. He was so tired. Hymphthala was petting his hair, crooning to him. Her tail wrapped around him as he rocked back and forth and cried over the deaths of his parents. His siblings were orphans now, some of them poddings too young to understand why mommy and daddy weren't coming back. Why something they'd never met, never done anything to, never wronged, had slaughtered their parents with mechanical glee. All they had left was him and the two brood mommies who were trying to use the act of comforting all the littles as a way to deal with their own grief. Lemital was wrapped in a blanket from his mother and father's bed. The littles and the podlings wrapped up with her. There were so many tears left. His mother, his father, his two brothers and sisters, all gone, blotted away by the precursor attack that he could hear rumbling above them. He rocked back and forth, crying, pressing his paws against his face, feeling nothing but black despair at the loss of his siblings and parents. Shh, okay to cry, brood mommy, love curve back, shh, Imftala said softly, rocking him, holding him as he wept. The metallic clinking sound out of Hemphtala's hugged him, brushing his face with a furry tail, rocking him back and forth. The clinking noise wouldn't stop. He woke up with a jerk and screamed, banging his head against the deflated pressure sleeve. His retinal display was warmed and the suit's power was running low. He knew that had to mean that the onboard reactor and batteries were damaged. His suit should be good for nearly a week of straight combat without running into power problems. Activate audio recording, Kalbeck coughed. It was hard to breathe. Audio recording active. Hi guys, Kalbeck said. I know I said I'd be home, but, well, things went a little different. He coughed for a moment, pausing the recording, then starting once he got his breath back. I wanted to make a difference, and I think I did, in a good way. I know things for our family have been tough, but you guys will be all right. He paused the recording for a moment, coughing. Podlings, listen to Mftala and Plemental. Be good, Podlings. Be brave, be smart, be strong, be clever. Grow up and be good, Tulkins. Grow up and take good care of your brood mummies. They love you with all their hearts, Galvik said. He paused it again to control his emotions. He felt tired, like just making the recording was exhausting. Grow up to be strong and clever and brave and kind. Grow up to love and laugh. The free podlings, Imphtala and Plimiltal, you were the best brood mommies ever. Nobody ever had brood mommies who loved them as much as you love me. When mom and dad died... When my siblings died, you made me feel like someone still loved me. I love all of you, and I'm sorry that I can't come home. Podlings, take care of your brood mommies, and I love you. Kalvek took a deep breath, as deep as he could. And recording... I am a Tulkan Marine, he said softly to himself. I cannot be beaten, not by metal, not by flesh, 
I may die, but I live on within the core, even if I am defeated. The core. Tolkien cannot be beaten. He raised his head inside his helmet and stared at his black faceplate. He blinked for a moment, trying to get the visor to come online before he realized it was dead. He managed to chin the release on the faceplate cracked open. He gulped the thick, foul-tasting air, the metallic taste overlaying scorched meat and something sick and cloying. The crack wasn't wide, the visor just jammed, reacting. He could still see. The city was suddenly burning around him, the orange lighting up the clouds in the sky. Lightning, orange and blue flickered in the clouds. Ash was drifting down, settling on everything, giving it a grayish-black hue. Where am I? appeared on his retinal display. What hit me? Triple D, is that you? he gasped. Think so. What happened? 222 asked. We landed bad, Kalbeck said. Clams all jammed. Help, 222 said. Sorry, buddy. I can't help, Kalbeck said. He coughed, hacked, and spit out saliva, blood, and ash. Suit or flying? You okay? Better than the other guy, Kalbeck said. He laughed and groaned as a cold sharp pains in his spine at the top of his shoulders. We in combat? No, just kind of laying around. Kalbeck had never understood the dark humor so many of the other guys had, but he was getting it now. The realization of why he was understanding the black humor, the dark comedy of the situation, made him laugh. Then groan had the pain. Gonna try pop the shell, 222 said. Luck, buddy, Kalbeck said. You aren't alone, Marine. I'm here with you. Thanks, I need that right now, Kalbeck said. Almost. Open-manted protective housing, Kalbeck coughed. The suit shuddered for a moment. A grinding came from behind, and for a split second, the pain roared up and down his spine. He gasped, but he didn't scream, as blackness took him. Two-two-two saw the clamshell open slightly before the flatware motor's gears stripped out. He pulled a spreader out of the Torah and attached it. He kept getting dizzy. Both of his antenna had broken off at the base, and his skull hurt. The only reason he had both eyes was he had been wearing his helmet. The eyepieces on the helmet cracked. Even so, both of his sensitive blade arms were still in the armor access ports. They'd snapped free when they'd hit the ground. The air was sweet to 222, aka Triple Juice, aka Triple D, throwing in through the small gap. He got the spreader locked in and began cranking on the ratchet to slowly open it. The wall steel crumbled and 222 stared at it. He picked up some of it and gripped it in his hands and twisted it. It broke apart like carbonized circuit board, like wood pulled from a fire. Two-two-two got a hammer and broke off enough chunks of the armor to see his next problem. He was trapped by a chunk of ferrocrete. Sighing, he kept using the hammer, pausing to take a break now and then while he panted. He hit his O2 supply twice and got back to work. Finally, he had a hole big enough to wiggle through. It took a minute. He had to leave his Magak rifle behind and pull it out through one foot pad, but he managed to climb out. The night was full of electromagnetic screaming, full howling particles. The infrared and ultraviolet spectrum was a howling rainbow of screaming chaos around him. He was suddenly insanely glad his antenna were broken off. He'd been nearly blind. Kalvak, 
We moved up onto the helmet of his marine and looked around. Kalvek! They were only a little ways away from the lake. Destroyed super-heavy war mech and half in the lake, half out, and a dismembered human was scattered around. There were weapons crates, war terran, army, heavy infantry, assault platoon weapons squad around them, all of them reading green. There were 14 telecom lines still active under the road. Broadcast power systems were fluctuating badly. Major power arteries below the ground were still active. It was raining ash. Complex molecular particle chains with moderate radioactivity. Vaporized metal, carbonized flesh, and other debris uptake from the detonation of atomic weaponry. 222 shut the opaque shields on his eyes for a moment, steadying himself. Galvec, he tried again. No answer. He looked down and his heart sank. The Talc Marine's legs were driven into the ground. One was nearly twelve feet away, and 222's brain computed the angle of descent from the hole in the building to the craters and knew that the Marine had cartwheeled in. His left leg had hit first, slamming deep into the ground and breaking off the knee. That made 222 give an electronic equivalent of a frown. He hustled over to the leg, looking at the armor. He reached out and grabbed a piece, pulling, and it broke off in his hand. He hurried back to the Talk Marine, holding tight on his Magak rifle and looking around. Deep in the bush, he thought to himself, scurrying around the front again. Kalvik had two inch and a steel rebar sticking out of his torso. Pinkish kinetic absorption fluid had oozed out of the crack hole. The edges bent outwards, looking like a watery blood. The Talcan himself had his eyes closed, and 222 felt a rush of relief when he saw the Talcan's whiskers tremble and nostrils flare as he inhaled slowly. Green Corps tough, he thought, checking the Talcan's leg stump. The suit had auto-sealed it, so that was good. One arm was bent badly, but still attached. The situation was bad, but 222 was a Marine Corps tactical engineer, and bad was when he did his best work. 222 managed to get the suit's diagnostic port open by banging on it with a hammer, then plugged in a cable he ran from the armor to the port at the back of the war steel data link that wrapped around the back of his head. He let his fingers run over the surface of his data link. It felt pebbly, granular. He filed that information away. The armor had taken a beating, the war steel had failed, the laminate had been compromised, the reactor had gone into shutdown and it was running off of batteries. Communications were out. All of the systems except the battlefield recording and emergency medical were offline. The nanites had their hands full, keeping the Talcan from dying from his injuries. Triple D's got you, Kalvek. The mantid flashed over his head, then turned and looked at what was pretty much a gift from the gods. The war mech. The human obviously didn't need it anymore. Sure, its legs were broken at the upper thighs. The cockpit had been peeled open, but 2-2-2 could see sparks shooting out from the damaged circuitry. Faintly hear the whining of servos and actuators on standby. 2-2-2 turned back to the unconscious Talcan and patted his nose. I got you. He scurried over to the bounty that was a dead war mech. It took two dozen trips, but he managed to get enough parts over the day to get the suit juice again. The Talcan's breathing was slow and steady, not ragged any longer. 222 took the time to work with the welder and cut away the endosteel rebar sticking out of the Talcan's torso. 
The whole time he worked, he hummed a pop song from Rigel. My chubby little duck's a pretty duck. He hummed as he used the hammer to break away the ferrocrete behind the Tarkin's armor, glossy feathers and pretty big. He used the torch to cut the bar away from the back. Little waddling walk and such a cute webbed feet used to come along to pull the Tarkin straight, singing pretty in the morning, noon and night. Tutu-Tutu went and dug the leg out of the ground and carried it over to tie it to the opposite leg with a length of fiber-optic cable taken from the dead Warmack. He's the prettiest duck you've ever had in sight. Tutu-Tutu was inside the Warmack's chassis, metering the output of the secondary reactor, when one of the proximity alarms that he'd set up began to ping. He climbed out quickly, but quietly, his Magak rifle held tight, exiting out the maintenance hatch in the upper shoulder of the mech. Hey, Sergeant, check it out, a voice over the radio said. Someone drop some infantry snack packs. Check them out, see whose they are, the voice was experienced, gruff. Someone check that dark marine, see if the tough little bastard's alive. Two-two-two pulled out a glow stick, breaking it across his abdomen, and waved it. The sun wasn't quite up, just a sudden band of ochre on the horizon. And he didn't want to take the chance of someone's reflex trigger splashing him across the mech's armor. Sergeant, I got a mounted engineer, one said. Yeah, Sergeant, he's alive. Tough little fricker, another said. One of the Terran troops, big and bulky in his powered armor, moved up and looked at Tutu-Tutu. You've had an exciting day, the Terran said. Tell me about it, Tutu-Tutu said. My marine needs a hospital. Can you evac? Yeah, we've got an ambulance from Second Armor running casualties to a striker base about thirty miles out, the Terran said. Tutu felt relief fill him. Screams watched as they carried the Talcan Marine in. His leg had been amputated just below the hip. His other leg was nothing but a shattered bone. He had a broken spine, compromised spinal cord, and massive internal organ damage, mostly centered around a piece of endosteel that was still driven through his torso. He was pretty much running off nanites and stubbornness. She looked at the battered and injured green mantid, still in combat armor, hanging on the wall and watching. The little greenie saw her looking and flashed, Never leave one behind! Screams nodded, stepped into the sterry field, and went to work. Muxted froze the playback and leaned back, sighing. The Terrans and the other Tarkin in the tent all shook their heads. Now we know, one of the Rygenians said. Which means now we know who to freaking kill, one of the Terrans growled. His eyes are hot amber. You're all going to leave command up to me during this, aren't you? Muxted complained. You're the ranking striker on the striker base, the black mandate, wearing a beret and carrying a rifle, said, rubbing his wings in a form of a shrug. This is your show. Gee, thanks, Muxted said. Let's put our heads together and figure out how to work this out. That kid survive, a Janadat with only three legs asked. Muxted nodded. Barely. The wall's over for him. His mantid survived too. But until he gets implants, wall's over for him too. Muxted looked at the maps on the table. It's still on for us. Let's figure this out. Outside, a bright white flash lit up the horizon as someone cracked off another atomic. The war went on. End of chapter. 
Chapter 250, Hessler. Muxtet glanced at his control board as light went from amber to red and started flashing. He turned his head as if it would matter and called out behind him to his comm officer. You reading that? I see it, puffing beacon query. Technician, the class Kuplo said. The light went from amber to green on his board. It's 9-3 con, 33 mounted rangers, coming in with 8. Send one forward to be recognized, Muxtet stated. There was a silence for a moment. Captain, freeze your soul, Terran army, a soft, whispering voice said, relayed from one of the marine dismount strikers in the back of Muxtet. Seven to come forward. Do you have any blueberry juice? The striker, Private Jacob, asked. No, we traded it for a handful of sandcastle pictures, the mantid answered. The day's query word, blueberry, had been answered with the day's password, sandcastle, and Muxtet felt himself relaxed. Count them in, Jacob said. Recovering drones now, 973 stated. 90 seconds to recovery. Boss, the captain is coming up to the cockpit, Jacob warned. His team's daddy's aboard. Thanks, Muxtet opened his spaceship, his whiskers twitching at the sudden cold that flooded in. The striker, orbit pair, in reference to Muxtet having to pull a pair flatspin recovery during an unpowered re-entry, was silent, cold, nothing more than a chunk of dead metal to anyone passing by. He could see the snow drifting down outside. It was only late summer, early autumn on the planet, but there was so much dust and debris in the atmosphere that what the humans called nuclear winter had set in. It had started snowing the night before. The black mantid, almost three foot tall, moved in silently, a magak rifle in its hands and a weapon's harness on its thorax. The Black Titan was covered in a light drift of snow, and it took a second for Muxtet to realize that it was actually some kind of spray on white stuff to camouflage the Black Mantid. He had on a black beret and looked dangerously competent to Muxtet. I didn't think they were letting you off for the firebase, Boop, the Mantid said. Muxtet snorted. I'm not an officer, despite everyone's attempts to make me one, he said. The black mantid pulled out a pack of Trianidad cigarettes, tapping it against one blade arm. One one. Sure, what's it gonna do? Kill me faster, Muxtet snorted. Eight aboard, Jacob said, as the mantid led to and passed Muxtet one. How's it look out there? Muxtet asked. They were eighty miles into enemy territory. The lines were starting to shake. The fighting in orbit and in the system was still going on. Obviously intense since explosions could still be seen in the night sky. But it was planet-side that Muxtet was worried about, and his own little section just outside a major population center to be specific. Crappy, the black mantid freeze said, shivering slightly. As mantids, we aren't fans of frozen oxidation. Well, rookie, if you can't take a joke, Muxtet said, exhaling smoke at his view screen. We aren't taking off yet. Freeze asked, looking out the smart glass, armor glass, windshield. Nope, making sure of something, Muxtet said. He put his hand on the side of his helmet out of habit. Jacob, our two surprises ready. On the door guns, sir, Jacob said. Surprises, the mantid asked. Two human helmets with maxed out psychic shielding and the kind they used around Lanik to land civilians, keeping an eye out, Muxtet said. That explains the weird looking door guns, the mantid said. Telkin design. Muxted shook his head. Terran ordnance core design of amperage neural rifle. 
The ordnance tech started going on about sine waves and phased auto-shifting amplitude, and my eyes crossed. Terrans sometimes seem to have the soul of a greenie, Freeze snorted. Heard that, 973 signaled back. Got movement, Jacob said, his voice a whisper. Engage, enable, Muxted whispered back. The tension slowly ramped up inside the striker, a living thing that reached out with tentacles and seemed to touch everyone. Muxted felt it, a slight tightness between the shoulder blades, a tension in the whiskers, an urge to flatten his ears. He noticed that Freeze was stroking his blade arms together, slowly, as if he was sharpening them. Contact, the human roared out, engaging. The rapid-fire heavy neural rifle thudded a quick five-round burst, the paralyzing packet slapping out, blue in the dimness. All five hit the target, the first two exploding into sparks in the mid-air about a foot above the snow, the third and fourth hitting bluish-purple energy crackling out in a halo above the object, the fifth slamming into an object and sending it tumbling. Dismounting, Jacob called out. Muxted saw the Talcum Marine jump out and run through the snow towards the twitching creature. Muxted slapped the button, bringing the shielded reactor to life, letting the graviton engines warm up and threading the power of the afterburner fuel pumps. The striker was a stealth striker designed to be invisible to as many detection systems as possible. The green boys had strapped on additional psychic stealth shielding for this mission. The creature was waving its mechanical crab legs in the midair, starting to rock side to side, trying to get up as Jacob threw down a box then kicked it into the box before slapping the lid shut. He grabbed the handle and ran for the striker. Contact! Multiple contacts engaging! The Terran roared out. Muxted lifted off, the graviton engines humming and as his instruments going live. There was little static on his smart screen from the heavy metal in the snowflakes, but his brain easily compensated for it. He shifted the half-finished cigarette in his mouth to hold onto the butt with his teeth. The Terran was running with the heavy neural gun, firing it on full auto, strafing the bushes around where the striker had been sitting. The energy packets blew pockets into the snow, shattering branches, cratering the barks of trees. It also sparkled or shielding, revealing more crab creatures, some of them waving blurred circular blades others spitting neural bolts that shattered on the striker's shields. Jacob jumped into the cargo and grabbed the handle. All on board, Corporal Gleckert snapped. Muxted slammed the power, kicking in the afterburners with one foot, a sudden acceleration slamming him into his seat. Jacob felt his feet lift off the deck plating of the striker's troop compartment, but held onto the ring with one of the power harbor-clad hands, the other holding onto the box. The telltales for the mounted anesthetic screen were burning a bright green. Muxtet leveled off just above the tree line, punching the throttles to max. The screens were turned off and he used his neural jack to activate the interior psychic suppression fields as the treetops smacked against the bottom of the striker. The striker's IFF was queried by a handful of manpads down in the woods, then by the emplacement positions as they shot towards the slowly stabilized front line. A bolo tapped the IFF and then went back to guarding the refugee site. A handful of tank systems queried his beacon and he lit off so it was squawking as he slowed the craft down, confident that he was in Confederate air defense net. The back mounted Freeze turned to Muxted instead. We were bait, he accused. Potential bait, Muxted answered, relaxing as he turned the striker towards strike base boop.
For what? The mandate asked. You seen anything weird out there? Something that didn't add up? Buxted asked. The mandate hummed for a moment. Actually, we did. A platoon of Terran infantry broadcasting they were surrounded and cut off. We moved up, popped a few recon drones, and it looked like they were panicking. They were dug in hard, shooting all around, even using their mortars and halballs on nothing. Just wreckage and empty air. They were completely panicked. You ever seen a Terran Confederate troop panic en masse? Muxted asked. The smoke was good, he had to admit that. He didn't have the afterburner shakes, which was a plus. The mantid hummed again. No. We withdrew, carried on our mission. They weren't panicking, Muxted said. That's why all the ranger patrols are being withdrawn. The mantid tapped his blade arms together in agitation. If they weren't panicking then, Muxted banked to then approach the striker base from the south. It was just another layer of protection. Any craft that tried to come in would either be cleared prior, on fire, or was compromised. They were shooting at something only they could see, Freeze said. His antennae tapped his beret, a nervous, thoughtful habit. You had the humans on board to spot the things. And caught one, Maxted said. The green guidance pegs were in his vision now, and he lightened his touch on the throttle. It's in the box. We're going to deliver it to our specialists. He settled the striker down with a hearty bump. The engine slowly unwound as he disconnected and got up. The mantid ranger left while Muxted was shutting down the craft. Creepy, creepy night, mantid, Light 73 said. Muxted just chuckled. When it was shut down, he went back to the crew compartment, jumping down into the slushy mud. He followed Jacob, who was carrying the box as they walked towards the tent where military intelligence was bunkered down. He dropped the dead cigarette butt into an empty can as he followed the striker. One of the Terran infantry suddenly whirled around on Jacob, his hand dropping to his pistol. What did you just call my baby sister Fuzzy? He growled. His eyes were burning red with the other four Terrans that were standing with him slowly turning to look at the Tolkien, their eyes bright red. Jacob stopped, his mouth working silently. Muxted stepped forward, pointing at the box. Psionic prisoner soldier, don't fight its fight for it. The Terran growled low and suddenly moved a preternatural snatching speed that was so damned fast. He snatched the box away from Jacob and shook it. What did you say? What? Think it's freaking funny now? The trooper yelled, shaking the box. Not so freaking big mouth now, are you? Yeah, freaking up, lieutenant. One of the others cheered. And ease with that crap, Muxton bellowed, using his suit's built-in speaker to overwhelm the Terran's enraged bellow. He stared up at the red-eyed Terran's lieutenant. And my man backed the box with the prisoner soldier. He wanted to run. The last thing he wanted was to face off against an enraged Terran. But the thing the box was important. The lieutenant dropped the box on the ground, splashing slush, then spit on it before turning away. It ain't worth it, he snarled. Muxter picked up the box and carried it into the armored tent. There were nearly thirty Trianidad, Mantid, Rygelians, and Bralvan military intelligence specialists inside. There had been nearly a dozen human ones, but Muxted had seen that they were outside, cleaning weapons, glaring over the wall, or pacing back and forth, mumbling to themselves. Did it work? the Trianidad asked, moving up. Yes, sir. Breeze isn't happy about being used as bait, Muxted said. The captain can remind himself that this is more important than his pride, the Trianidad said, exhaling blue smoke. Spot me one? Muxted asked, 
his nerves still raw and jangled from bracing down an angry Terran. The Trianidad nodded, handing Munkstead a self-lighting one from the Trianidad ration packs. The box was put up against a clear armor glass box with a spray-on smart coating. They opened the box and the thing rushed in and bounced off the far armor glass as the side was slid shut and the armored box pulled away. Munkstead could finally get a look at it. About three foot long, two foot wide oval, with six robotic spider legs, clumps and crude looking wires and glass tubes. It had glass globe that was glowing softly blue, a pair of laser wands on either side of the glass globe, and what looked like a micro-missile launcher on its back. Inside the glass globe was a brain connected to the wires, thin metal probes, glass tubes with fluid in them. It's a Heslin brain, one of the technicians said. The creature wavered and vanished. And there it is, the candidate said. Our Terran friends are right. The reptilian Blevin pressed a button and a microwave current sliced through the box. The thing inside gave a squeal as it appeared, jumping around for a moment, clattering its legs. And it's driving them feral, the Ruggedian said, leaning forward to get a better look at it. I think it's safe to say it uses psychic energy. Look at those readings. Do you still need me? That thing gives me the creeps, Munkstead said honestly, watching as the cybernetic horror tried its weaponry against the armor glass before throwing itself against it several times. It unfolded blade arms surrounded by flowing nimbus of psychic energy and attacked the armor glass with that, not even scratching it. Sure, thank your men for us. This is a vital clue, the Rygelian said without turning away from the box. See those fluid pulled tubes in the back? They're pumping that liquid into cerebral tissue now that it's using psychic energy on the blade arms, she said as her compatriots and Muxted left the tent, exhaling smoke into the snowy air. Outside he found Jacob being lifted up and up to a hug by the Terran lieutenant who'd confronted him. I always liked you fuzzy guys, the Terran said, setting Jacob down and patting him on the head hard enough to make the Tarkin's knees buckle slightly. Good job snatching one of the goonigoos. Thank you, sir, Jacob said. Um, my striker leader is coming. Carry on then, private, the Terran officer said, turning back to his men. All right, let's coordinate and do the sweep. Jacket moved over to Muxted. He was apologized for thinking the voice in the box was me. They can hear them, Muxted said softly. They can see them and hear them, but nobody else can. That has to be making them crazy. The Terrans that he could see all had red eyes. He moved over and climbed up onto the stack of empty ammo boxes, watching the mechanics go over his striker. After a few minutes, he noticed that there were three groups of humans moving on the perimeter of the striker base, moving slowly, weapons held ready. There were three other groups moving in a circle counter to the perimeter group, a third group moving counter to the inner group, and a fourth group that was sitting around watching the interior. What are they doing? Muxted asked Jacob. I don't know, the marine answered honestly. There's Ralvax. Ralvax, Muxted nodded as one armed marine climbed up next to him. Know what the humans are doing? Ralvax nodded. They've been seeing things all morning, claiming that there's something lurking around inside Striker Base Boop. Looks like a standard sweep pattern. You think there's something in the base with us? Jacob asked softly, looking around. Ralvax shrugged. I don't know. Maybe it has to do with them going crazy. Muxted shook his head. No, I think... Bang out! One of the Terrans ordered, throwing a grenade over the gap between the cargo containers. 
The grenade went off mid-air, and Muxtick knew that the Terran had cooked it by pouring the pin, loosening his grip on the lever so that the striker would hit the fuse, then throwing it after the fuse had burned for a second or two. The screaming was loud, echoed, and piercing. Muxtick, Ralvex, and Jacob all clamped their hands to their heads as the scream. A tall figure, clad in iridescent robe and hovering on a disk of bluish energy, reeled away from where it had been partially hidden by the cargo containers. It lost its footing on the disk, covering its large white eyes with two hands, screaming. Before it could recover, there was a pair of Terrans on it, grabbing it, held out, and the Terrans roared in rage even as the air rippled around them with unseen force. Three Terrans were knocked down, crates went flying, and a Terran wearing a power load of frame turned and grabbed a crate of anti-armor missiles. They had been trying to hold on to it, trying to pin it, but the second swoop, and they bellowed, wordless, meaningless audio aggression, and shifted the grips even as two more Terrans grabbed it. A second ripple made the Terrans' flesh ripple as their armor shattered and flew away. Blood flowed from the Terrans' noses, out of the grinning mouths, as they held onto the parts that they had in their hands and tensed. One Terran grabbed the creature's facial tentacles, another sunk his hands into the top of the head from behind. The third whoop sounded, just as all the Terrans, grinning at each other, pulled in opposite directions. The arms and legs came off in a spray of purple gore. The tentacles tore off into Terran's hands, revealing a cavernous mouth full of rings of sharp teeth. The one holding onto the top of the head tore the flesh from the skull. It collapsed to the ground and Muxter jumped up from where he'd fallen in the slush, running towards the Terrans as they roared in anger and began stomping on the corpse, the ones with the limbs throwing them on the body. Stop! Stop! We need it for intel! Muxter yelled out as the two of them pulled out their pistols and started firing into the corpse, yelling that that was what the corpse got while being a sneak. They stopped, turning to stare at him, and it felt like the heat of a roaring fire rushing over him. We need to get intel from the body, he said, pointing at the medical tent. Take it in there, two of you stand guard. Muxton watched as the Terran, still growling, picked up and carried the body into the medical tent. Rolvex moved beside him, cradling his cyber arm and rubbing his forearm. Looks like they were right, Rolvex said. Guess someone was sneaking around. For a second, Muxted had an overwhelming urge to smack the Marine. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. And if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment, just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one, and until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.